Yo, 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 amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dude, dudettes, welcome to another fine episode. And this one's a episode, no matter which way you look at it, it's the same number, 69. <laughs> I've heard about this. something I've heard about. I'm not sure what it is, but yeah, the, whether you turn the six or the nine upside down, it's it's the same number. Yeah, it, well, it's the number after 68 and one before 70. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> So we are back once again. This is a, obviously I'm your I'm the highest. Uh, well, I'm the most famous unpaid brand ambassador for Tommy Bahama Morgan Wright here, literally with my partner in crime, <laughs> Steve Murphy. But everybody calls me Murph. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome, Murph man. Hey, and this is going to be fun. This one, actually, Steve. This next we'll get into this next episode in a minute. But this one actually came from one of our listeners, somebody that came out of listening to Mark Comboy's episode. Uh, about the the shootout in Colby, Kansas. So this one's going to be fun. Before we get to it, the script says I'm supposed to do housekeeping. Thank you for joining us, Dash Small Talk. Now housekeeping. So hey, head on over to Apple Review, those five stars, and Spotify. It really helps us out, guys, a lot. We really appreciate it. Give your comments in there. Let us know about the episodes, kind of content you're looking for. We really want to try and figure out you know, what you're interested in, what keeps this thing going. So, you know, just really just help us out over there. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where you'll find books, especially from the one that we're coming up now. So that's everything there. Um, our mailing list is there. So we'll put our information there. Also follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Murph, where do you got to be, especially after this weekend? Because you're about to get a storm. You may not be here after this. So, But where do you got to be? Where you got to be? Where do you got to be? <laughs> well, because of the storm, I have to be in California the midweek. So I'm getting ready to change my flights to try to get out of here before the hurricane pain in the ass gets here. But where you got to be with the show is on Patreon, our subscriber channel. We've got buttloads of good content over there. Come and check us out. See what you like. If there's things on there you don't like, let us know. We'll consider changing things. I mean, this is all about entertaining you and giving you guys information about us, from us, through us. We're open to suggestions always. So that's why the that's why your ratings are so important. Uh, yeah, come and, and, check and us your out. and your feedback on the episodes and stuff. So we just as as we are recording this, um, we are we do just in time intros, outros for our episodes. So as we're recording this. Episode six of the real DEA Narcos talking about the real DEA Narcos Cali edition just dropped. And this one uh, with Dave and Chris, the boys, we review the first three episodes of uh, season three of Narcos. What works, what didn't, what they thought was accurate. Very interesting stuff. So you got to listen to that 911, what's your emergency? So we got a ton of stuff coming out. As Merce said, just go over, give us a shot. And once you get hooked, you know, you know, we're, we're kind of like a, an addictive uh, drug. It's, you know, it's like Belgian beer. Once you try one, you got to have two. Right. It's kind of like uh, going, getting a colonoscopy. When you want one, you, when you get one, you want another. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I just got the anesthesiology bill. No, you don't. Uh, okay. What's left of it anyway. All right. <laughs> <Let's>, uh, <laughs> but by the way, seriously, if you're over 50, go get one. Join the yeah. club, pal. Join the club. Seriously, true. Yeah, hey, and head on over to paypal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes. Oh, actually, I forgot to tell you, this is where you go find us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We almost got past it without telling people where to find us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got to do it with that reverb in there to kind of add the announcer effect. It's been a busy weekend. Oh, boy, has I just got back last night doing something uh, kind of stealthy. It'll be on uh, television here in a while, but we'll talk about that later. PayPal.com. Use our email, Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. Now, before we get started, got to tell you something. 
folks, just head on over to uh, Facebook. Go find Game of Crimes, Game of Crimes fans, run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Give it a shot. Get answer two questions. You just got to be remotely in the ball field. If you if you can if you can write at least a semi coherent sentence in English, there is a good chance you'll be admitted to the club. You qualify. You qualify. You have a heartbeat <laughs> and a Facebook account, folks. But just go do it. We, and there's because we pull a lot of our content for Small Town Police Botter, which we're getting ready to talk about here in a minute, from you folks there in some of our stories and our Q and A. So head on over there. But uh, again, as always, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the stories seriously, but as you know, we never take ourselves serious. I mean, we're kind of. Well, Morgan's an idiot, and I just kind of hang out with him. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. I'm a moron. There's a difference. Oh, there you go. Well, okay. I got the idiot thing. You got the moron. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, but Murph, before we can find out which of us is the idiot or the moron, I got to ask you one question. Guess what time it is? I bet it's time for... Small Town Police Blotter. Yay! And speaking of, remember, this comes from our Game of Crimes fans, Liz Calise comes up with another one. And Murph, guess what? It's what? from Florida. Yeehaw! From Sebastian, Florida, population 25,054. Salute. Salute. Actually, 25,054 minus two here in just a minute. So, Steve, <laughs> if you've just gone to Walmart and you've stolen a big 75-inch, you know, flat screen TV, what's probably the next thing you're probably going to do? Well, you want to get away and not get caught. Yeah, not these guys. <laughs> so the they Sebastian went back for more or what? Uh, well, hold on here. They worked up an appetite. The Sebastian Police Department received a call from a store employee about two men who tried to load a large television into a black Cadillac Escalade, which fell out as they drove away. They located <laughs> the SUV at the restaurant at a fast food restaurant and questioned the two men. During the questioning, the police discovered yet another television in the back of the vehicle. Two gentlemen, aged 23 and 21, both from Palm Bay, said they were trying to return the TV to Walmart. But what happened was the loss prevention officer saw that they were attempting to leave with another television. They tried to show him a receipt, which didn't work. So they exited the store, pushed the television into the vehicle, yelling, go, 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 as the loss prevention officer was following them. As they were leaving, the TV fell out of the rear because the door wasn't closed. But that didn't phase them. They went next door to Taco Bell, where they were apprehended. Well, the, you know, have you seen those commercials where, like, the goalie's playing and you hear that, goal. They heard the gong and they... Yo, get on Taco, Taco Bell. Bell. Ding. Oh, let's go to Taco Bell. That's what happened. That was the sound when the TV hit the hit the pavement. It went ding dong. Oh. Yeah. yeah, people are just such idiots. Now they are. No, no, Steve. Let's. Uh, we we don't know who's the idiot or the moron here, but let's let's not confuse them with us. Anyway. Yeah. Steve, you ever had a? You know, remember when your kids were growing up? You know, and you know they were fussy. They didn't want to go to bed and didn't do stuff. Yeah. Oh, did you ever call yeah. the? Did you ever call the police on them? No, one of my kids threatened to call the police on me one time. I told her, I am the police. <laughs> I am the police. One thirty-nine a.m., yelling coming from a colonial village home was determined to be a child being put to bed and being fussy. So, <laughs> so what happened? Don't know. That was that was it. It's like, why are you calling the cops to put you? And why is it one thirty-nine in the morning? Exactly. Oh. I, I, um, mm -mm. I, you know, I could say, is that failure to parent or... or uh, I, well, you know, I don't. When you're a parent, 
you can be your kid's friend to degree, but you got to be the parent first. Got to be the parent. And I, I never liked it when the, you walk by the parents and they go, oh, be, be good or the policeman's going to put you in jail. And I would walk and say, I'm not going to put you in jail. If mommy or daddy uh, do anything to you, I'm going to put them in jail. So, yeah. ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, that used to tick me off, too, because they portray you to be the bad guy. And, and little kids are just excited to see cops in the uniforms. It's not you. It's the uniform that they, they like used to, to be see. anyway. Well, well, hopefully they will get back to that point. But, Steve, yeah. we're almost upon... Um, uh, Halloween season, right? It's it's mm-hmm. pretty close, just around the corner, right? I bet you're going to dress up Tommy Bahama, aren't you? Uh, I do have some pumpkin-flavored uh, Tommy Bahama, yeah. <laughs> we will talk about it. However, though, at 8.51 a.m. <laughs> so wrong to say. <laughs> a pumpkin was taken from the property and returned fully carved on Mountain View Drive. Well, they returned it. What's the problem? <laughs> Why would you report that? <laughs> Why would you report that? That's just somebody doing the messy work for you. Okay, last one for this before we move on, Steve. <laughs> okay. You've, you've had, uh, hey, look, I've been the victim of butt dialing, and you've probably been butt dialed or butt dialed somebody, right? You know, you stick the phone in there, you didn't mean to, or your thumb hits it, you know, and you dial somebody. Knock on wood, I haven't done it, but I've had it done to me. Yeah, well, uh, don't make sure that when you're doing it, you're not these guys that you call a, a neighboring 911 uh, county, pocket dialed 911 from an adjacent county with male subject telling his friends he was high looking for a charger and wanted to just do laundry and eat ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? These people, they bring a bad name to us idiots. <laughs> well, they got to come up with a different name for them. We do. They, they're, they're in a class by themselves. Well... Thus thus endeth the reading for today, P.A. is to dominate, Donna A. is requiem. All right, so that is the end for this one. And the morons there in Florida, I guess that's what happens when you steal the TV. You got to, you know, build your strength back up. You got to go to Taco Bell and eat. Idiot. I just, (sighs) this, you know, this stuff qualifies for our Patreon channel. You can't make this shit up. You cannot. By the way, though, speaking of stuff you can't make the shit up, uh, we can't make up this next story because it's really, really true. And it comes to us courtesy of Aaron Burke. So when we did Mark Conboy's episode in the shootout in Colby with the, the four people, Danny Rometta, Lisa Dunn, Mark Walters, and um, um, uh, James Hunter, um, she's she's from Colby, Kansas. She was a kid growing up during the time when these shootings happened, when these people were killed, really affected her. She's working on a book. So she had reached out to me because we had some information in the podcast she wasn't aware of when we were back visiting family. I actually had the chance to meet her. We met, went over her book. I helped her, structured it, you know, showed her where to go, like get court records and stuff, uh, things like that. And uh, so later on, just kind of out of the blue, she says, hey, this is just kind of as a funny story. She sent it to me and it was about the world's largest LSD operation had been run out of a missile silo in Wamego, Kansas. And I know where Wamego is because growing up as a Ute in Chapman, Kansas, Wamego was one of our schools in the North Central Kansas League, the NCKL, the nickel. And uh, I'm going, you got to be kidding. So as we got researching this, what did we find out, Murph? You knew the guy. Yeah. But guy, uh, and his name is Guy, as a matter of fact, Guy Hargraves. Uh, and it's funny because Guy and I talked about his book um, several years ago, I think it was. And he was looking for an introduction uh, to see if there might be any interest in a potential uh, movie. And uh, <clears throat> I think I made some phone calls. And uh, you know, I tell you, it's, we try to help people out, but these producers just are not good at all about calling people back. They ghost you. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but it was. I'm glad you did that because I mean, you know, you brought it up, and then it rang that bell, and we reached out to guy. And holy cow! Was it like the Taco Bell bell dong, um, and then you dong? Well, I didn't go to Taco Bell, but yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> but what was really cool is, you know, 
there's so many connections to this, at least for me personally, because out of Kansas, but who would, I mean, it never made the news. Uh, this happened about the time I was uh, in Virginia and it, you think something like that would make the news, but it didn't. But Steve, you did some interesting research where we found a poll. When they made the arrest of these guys, they figured out that they were responsible for what? 90% of the world's LSD production? Yep. And it's backed up by statistics after they went to jail. <laughs> Availability dropped. This is one of the most significant impact cases I've ever heard in my life. And you're right. Nobody understands why it didn't get the publicity it deserved. Well, let's let's give it a little bit of publicity this time now. And, you know, we want to let's, you know, so what we'll do is we'll dive into this episode. This is a strange episode, LSD out of a missile silo in north central Kansas. I mean, you just, you, yeah, this, you can't make this shit up. And so for us to believe it uh, and hear it, I got to ask you one question, Murph. Are you ready to blah, 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 blah? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. It was a long night. Uh, anyway, anyway, by the way, Notre Dame won, yay. And the Kansas State Wildcats beat Oklahoma. Yay. How so, many, But how many games has Notre Dame won this year so far? Two. They're two and two. So they're back to 500. So. Oh, I thought they only won. I thought this was their first win. No, this is their second win. Okay. Yeah. But now you've run kind of my, 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 <laughs> sorry, my mojo here. So I have to ask you once again, Murph, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous and missile silo friendly game of all the game of crimes? Absolutely. And listen, if you've ever tried LSD, we're going to pray for you. You might have a flashback <laughs> in this uh, episode. So get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Guy, tell us your story, brother. Yeah, damn, or a fuck comes out, it's okay. Okay, and that's on the record too, Murph. There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> is, is, is this live or recorded for later? Recorded. For Why? Well, I, I hope yeah. you're live, okay. but we're recording this for later. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's what I want you. No, no, no. We're not. We're not broadcasting live to the world. And don't worry if you say anything you don't want to. We'll edit it out for okay. a fee. <laughs> i'm trying not to eat cat food in retirement here you know what i mean yeah, yeah. we got a, a, a real quick joke too i remember a guy was telling me some sales training stuff he said hey look if you really want to get good at selling stuff it's like an optometrist did one time guy walks into the optometrist's office he says look when somebody walks in they look at you they say how much is an eye exam you say 125 dollars, and if they don't flinch you say per eye <laughs> there you yeah. go there, there's your joke for the Hey guys, we already got started as you can see. So before we get too much, we got a welcome to the show. This guy has a varied background. I don't think he could hold a job. We're going to talk about Dallas DEA writing for the FBI, pol polygraphing for the CIA. I mean, welcome to the show, Guy Hargraves. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor. It's an honor to have you on here, brother. This is a retired DEA agent. You forgot to include that part, Morgan. No, I said DEA. Did you? Yeah, well, maybe you're I forgot to listen. Murph, you're, you, you're sleeping. <laughs> well, usually when you talk, I don't listen very closely, so sorry. But, guys, it's an honor to have you on here, brother. It's, it's uh, been a long time since we've seen each other, and it's great to have you back. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, well and the cool part, too, is this you came to us by way of I was, I did an ep, uh, we did a podcast episode with a guy I used to work with on the state patrol that was involved in a shootout. Uh, these folks went on a multi state killing spree, killed four people. Uh, actually, six people, uh, four people in Kansas, a little town called Colby, Kansas. And one of the people listening to it was writing a book or is writing a book about it. And she says, have you ever heard this story? And she sent me the story about the missile silo in Wamigo, Kansas. <laughs> and that's how we got started on this whole thing. It's kind of like, 
Well, because I will tell you, well, you'll find out later. I grew up, uh, I was born at Fort Riley. We moved around the world. I ended up back at Fort Riley, grew up in Chapman. Wamigo was one of our uh, uh, conference schools. So I used to go up to Wamigo all the time. And we had all those missile silos, all, you know, the, 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 all the, you know, the old decommissioned now missile silos. You didn't know they were there, you know, so this is going to be fun. LSD in a missile silo. You guys think we're making this stuff up? No, this is the real deal. (laughs) Well, you know, um, this case, it wasn't quite as dramatic as what, what uh, Steve had in, in Colombia with Pablo Escobar, but this case certainly had the most bizarre characters of any case in DEA history. Uh, your, but, your investigation actually had a positive effect on, on taking yeah. down a drug, and I can't wait to talk about that. that is, well, we're going to do that, but, but Guy, I know you want to hop into it, but we got our own way of doing things. Before we do this, we got to ask you, how did you get involved in this thing of ours? Uh, Steve had it all wrong. He kept calling it La Cosa Nostra. As we learned, it's Cosa Nostra. But how did you get involved in this thing we called law enforcement? I mean, was it family? Did you have friends in it? Uncles, aunts? You know, how, how did the how did you get started down this path, including Dallas and CIA and writing for the FBI? So how did this thing start? Well, it was it was uh, I, I, when I was growing up, I originally wanted to be a military officer. I was thinking about going to Annapolis and Naval Academy, but uh, I as you said military. <laughs> but uh, as as I got older, you know, growing up in Junction City, which is right next to Fort Riley, where you where you were, I know, you know? It well, That's, yeah. And uh, you know, in the 1960s, Junction City was a pretty rough place. I mean, as a as a teenager in high school, I used to drive my little Chevy Camaro through downtown. There's a place called East Ninth Street, and I used to see. I mean, literally on Main Street, you'd see people getting mugged. And I kind of came to the realization that crime, uh, you know, and drugs might be as much or a bigger problem for this country than anything, you know, especially with the dwindling uh, uh, threat of the communist empire. And you know what made it really dangerous down there, too? It was when they used to call when the eagle landed, when the eagle crapped, all of those E1s through E3s would take their money and go into Junction City and do a lot of foolish stuff. I mean, there was a lot of prostitution, like you say, a lot of crime. Um, Oh, yeah. And then when I was a Salina cop, we used to uh, work with the M- MPs on special enforcements because then the uh, the soldiers would start getting arrested in Junction City. So they'd start moving over. So they ended up in Salina. So what fun. that I didn't realize you grew up in Junction City. Wow. I'm just, yeah, you know, I'm going to take a nap during this interview. When y'all need me, just wake me up. Hit a buzzer. Well, Murph, that's usually the case. We have to wake you up. I, by the way, I have Murph's chair set to a taser so I can send a command remotely. <laughs> No, but no, I'm sorry. We digressed there. That was our first digression. If you're following the drinking game, uh, that is uh, drink number one. But anyway, my my dad was a podiatrist in Junction City. He was a, a World War II veteran on a PT boat in World War II, and I think he decided to settle in Junction City because all the soldiers there'd be a lot of foot problems. And I grew up there and went to school at University of Kansas. Uh, majored in journalism at the University of Kansas, and uh, that's how I. Had, you know, and Sorry, uh, that's how I hit it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, Morgan's probably a K-State guy. I don't know, but uh, well, now my my middle son graduated from Kansas State. I graduated from Fort Hay State. And 
anyway, after I, I majored in journalism, which uh, you may wonder, you know, well, shouldn't I major in criminal justice or something more law enforcement related? But actually, it was kind of a good degree for being in law enforcement because, as you guys well know, half the work is writing reports. You know, oh, uh, yeah. if you if you if you can write a DEA six without your supervisor having to correct it three times, it'll enhance your career a little bit, I think. You know, <laughs> so after I got my journalism degree, I. Uh, I worked for the FBI for just one year as an editorial clerk on their law enforcement bulletin magazine. And uh, they used to have a program where you worked as a support employee for three years and you go to agents class. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover died. The new director got rid of that program. So I said, there's no sense in sticking around here. And a friend of mine said, you should come to work for Dallas Police Department. As he said, that's one of the two best police departments in the country, that in L.A. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And I really enjoyed it. I, I, I tell you, I'd be working as a Dallas police officer. People don't realize, you know, uh, federal agents, we, we have a lot of prestige and everything. But uh, there's more action being a uniformed police officer in a big city than, than any, you know, than any role in law enforcement. And I just really enjoyed my three years with the Dallas police or almost four years with Dallas police department. So hold on. You don't get to gloss over that that much. I mean, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, I did four years. Okay. Let's talk about wh how did, what possessed you to, to go to Dallas? I know you said it, you was your friend. So what was the application process like? How, you know, you're coming out of Kansas, Junction city, Kansas, Gary County, by the way, for you folks keeping track, by the way, I have to give credit to Alex Campbell, Steve, Alex Campbell came up with that drinking game. Like if we say I digress and back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So Alex gets credit for that. But how did you find out about uh, Dallas, or was it just through your friend? Uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Milligan. He, uh, I told him I was I was leaving the FBI because you know it wasn't much of a future there since they got rid of that program, and uh, he he convinced me that Dallas was the best police department to go to. And well, you know, it was a big city police department. I wanted to get some action, and uh, so you moved well, out to Washington sure D.C. first. Yes, I was in D.C. for one year after college and then uh, four years in uh, Dallas, Texas. So how was tell us about applying for Dallas PD? Like, uh, you know, how long did it take you to get on? Uh, well, you know, I was really lucky. They were they were in a big hiring frenzy because Dallas was growing like crazy. And it only took uh, a few months to get hired. I mean, I think it was only three or four months. Uh, of course, I had to take a polygraph. Uh, I had to do the usual background investigation and, and interviews. And uh, it was... Didn't you uh, go through that for the FBI when you got hired there? No, because at the FBI, I was a support employee. I wasn't an agent. So, I mean, they did an interview with me, but there wasn't a polygraph. Well, actually, I don't, and poly, FBI didn't use to polygraph, like uh, CIA polygraphs. Oh, uh, Robert Ganston. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, people don't realize uh, uh, 95 percent of the people who get disapproved from CIA in the hiring process are from polygraph, not background investigations, because you find out no, nobody knows what crime somebody's done more than they know themselves. You know, you interview a neighbor, a neighbor doesn't really know what that guy's doing. You know, uh, polygraph, people don't, people don't realize how effective polygraph is. Yeah, we used to find out on polygraphs, you know, and the other thing, too, that got a lot of people um, uh, uh, thrown out of the process, you you lie about something that would otherwise not disqualify you for employment, but you lied about it. And the fact you lied about it in the polygraph is what disqualified you for employment. And we, we used to tell people for you going for your polygraph, be truthful about everything, you know? And it's like, well, well I lied about doing this. That wouldn't have disqualified you. But the fact that you lied, guess what? Now you got an integrity issue. 
Yep. You know, the, uh, oh, I could tell you, it, it, although after being a polygraph examiner, you get to where you, you hardly believe anybody. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you hear so many lies after a year of doing that job and you uh, make you a little cynical. It's kind of like a combination of being a priest and a confessional and a police officer and a military officer, all three, if you're CIA, because you're checking, you know, uh, international stuff and, and, uh, but uh, it it uh, it's an amazing experience, but it's also very stressful. I I found it more stressful than being a DEA agent because you know in DEA and like police work, you know you may have uh, you know thirty seconds of total terror, but then you know it's kind of whereas with polygraph, I mean you're eight hours a day in there face to face, people screaming at you and crying, and and it's a rough job. Holy cow! Give us give us a timeline of your of your career. So you went to DEA, or you went to DC in what year with the bureau? Uh, I was with the, uh, right out of college uh, in 1977. It would have been May of 77 I graduated. And then I went to work for the FBI for just one year. And then uh, uh, right after that, I went to the Dallas Police Department for uh, four years, three and a half, four years. And, so let's, uh, let's, stop, let's stop there for a second. Let's just drill down a little bit on Dallas. So when you got hired on, um, you know, you said you got hired on, you went through the academy. Um, how many people were in your class when you went through that? I think it was like uh, 35, 40 officers. You know, we went through the academy and training and everything. And uh, it, that was, they did a real good job. The academy was, I think it was like six months long. It was a long academy. You know, as long as you have to stay at the academy or were you living in Dallas and going back and forth each day? Yeah, you you didn't stay at the academy like you do with DEA and FBI. You you lived at home, but you had to come every morning and report for eight hours. And they made us run two up two miles every day. And and, uh, you know, they had they had a pretty good training program. So you you get out, right? You're you do your field training program. So what's it like once you first get out on your own? in a uniform and a patrol car and you're it's guy hargraves officer at large you know what was that like being in dallas well <laughs> it's funny you'd ask that question because my first experience being alone was was a terrible one i mean i, I had a guy naked walking down the middle of the street in dallas he was high on pcp fencyclidine which is the worst drug out there, in my opinion, of any of them, because, it, I mean, they, they, they. And that's why he was naked, too. Most yeah, people yeah. on PCP, when they get dusted, they got, I got to take my clothes off. I, well, they get <laughs> hot and they sweat and they take, you know, they get crazy and violent. And, uh, you know, so here I am, a rookie cop. It was, well, I'd been with a trainer for six months, but this was only like the third third day that I was by myself. And the sun was just coming up and I'm driving in in a squad car in Dallas rush hour traffic. And I look up and there's this naked guy walking down the middle of the road, about six foot two and cars are honking their horns. And, and I had a car in front of me and behind me, so I couldn't move my car. And he came walking up to the window and I rolled the window down and he looked at me and started screaming. And uh, fortunately I, I reached over at that moment to grab the microphone on Motorola radio. And he swung through the window and hit me in the back of the head, started screaming. I was, you know, uh, MF and me and, and the whole works, you know, and then he crawls through the window and he's trying to grab my gun and, uh, <laughs> I'm screaming. This was a real funny story because I'm and screaming. It was at this point, Guy Hargrave says, what the hell am I doing in Dallas, Texas? Exactly. You know? And so I get on the microphone. The funny part, I'm screaming, help, help. There's a naked man in my car. And <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not me it's not me 
And a female officer, she gets on the on the radio and says, "Where are you at? I want to see this." And I'm no, I'm serious. And I'm screaming. I'm I'm hitting him on the head with a with, with the with the microphone, uh, you know. And and so anyway, fortunately, I got a hold of his hair. He had an afro, and I a big afro. And I started banging his head into the corner of that Motorola radio several times. It wasn't even hardly phasing him because he was on PCP. But if, if finally I hit him enough times that it kind of disoriented him and I threw him out the window. But before I did that, cars were honking and laughing because his naked butt was sticking out the window of my car. <laughs> oh, were there were there camera phones out that time? <laughs> no, before, I, God, I wish they would have had. Uh, we, we didn't have cameras in those days. This was way back in like, you know, 1978, 79. And you were just going to gloss over all of this and get right to something else. And there is magic. In the footnotes here, man. Uh, well, I, we need to know how this culminated. What happened next? <laughs> so, so anyway, it gets it gets even crazy. It's like it was like something out of a Keystone Cops episode because I threw him out the window, and I should have just jumped out and put him in a chokehold or something. And and uh, but but I threw him out the window, and I reached over to grab my nightstick. And well, while I did that, he jumped up on the car hood, and he started leapfrogging on cars that were. Oh, you know, geez. backed up and pray. So it, 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 I, I, I'm on the, if you can imagine a police officer with a nightstick, I'm chasing him across car hoods. And every time I swing the nightstick, he leapfrogs to the next car and people are laughing and honking their horns. And this finally, sounds like a video game. <laughs> yeah. And finally, I had to whack a mole. <laughs> finally, I had to chase him uh, for like half a mile before I caught him. And, uh, I finally caught him, and thank God there was an officer, Jesse Trevino, showed up, and he was a Golden Gloves boxer, and I had him in a hold, and, and Jesse helped me out, and we got him in handcuffs, and, and now Jesse's holding one end of him, I'm holding his legs, and we're carrying this naked man down the road, and cars Wait, keep wait a minute. Holding which end of him? <laughs> He's naked. <laughs> let's, be, let's be clear about this. Well, no, he was so well endowed, I probably could have mistook it for a leg. But uh, <laughs> we, we, anyway, each of us were carrying him, and, and cars driving by, honking, and people laughing, and and uh, so anyway, that that was my initiation to law enforcement. Oh, this is one of the best stories we've had. <laughs> this is we're up in the episode in the '60s range, and this is one of the best, funniest stories we've ever had. It is. Here. Well, it's got to be the most fascinating opening story we've ever had. If somebody says, "Yeah, my first day was kind of interesting," what? Ah, naked dude on PCP hops through my car. You know, we have uh, never had that. For our listeners, just so you understand, PCP, it's like it gives you superhuman strength. You don't feel pain. I mean, I've heard stories of, of people on PCP being shot multiple times and still coming on strong. You know, they, they just endure the pain or they don't even know that they're they're in pain. So it, it's extremely dangerous to go up against somebody, especially one-on-one -on -one when they're on PCP. Angel dust, right? Yeah. And they used to put it on the American they used to spray it on marijuana, so you might think you're smoking a joint and you end up uh, being high on fencyclidine, you know? Jeez. Man, oh, man. <clears throat> well, that's going to be hard to top that story. So. Hello, what a story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what nickname did you get out of that when that was all over? I know the cops gave you a nickname. Oh, actually, I'm lucky they didn't. But uh, uh, oh, they razzed me for months about that. You know. Oh, hey, you got any more, you got, hey, hey, guy, have you got any more naked men jumping in your car? You know. <laughs> That's funny. I just thought it was funny. The female officer go, "Where's he at? I'll be right there." 
Yeah. It wasn't Are you that, joking or what? It wasn't officer needs assistance or 1099 or 1013 or whatever the 10 code you guys were using down there for an officer needs help. It's like, I got a naked man in the car. Well, you know, when you get under stress <laughs> and you it. panic, you just start screaming, you know, hey, help. Absolutely. You, know, you don't think about no, the code absolutely. number. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay, podcast sorry, is over. this is going to be a yeah, this is going to be a completely separate podcast up until this point. The <laughs> Guy Hargraves and the Naked Man. There you go. Uh, that's probably going to be the title of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's hope not. We 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 got we got a little ways to go here. Okay, so that one that one's probably tough. Now, you probably ended up being involved in some real uh Harry stuff too. <laughs> Get it, Harry? Um, see, work that in. Joke. I, I fell asleep again. You start talking. I fell asleep. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but were you just on patrol the whole time, or did you move into a different unit uh, down at Dallas uh, well, before I you was, left? I was on patrol for the first uh, two and a half years, and uh, then because I had a journalism degree, they had me do the hundred anniversary history yearbook for Dallas Police for the Chief. But um, I actually enjoyed being a lot in the field more than doing that but uh yeah we we, we had some uh, at that time dallas was uh, a lot of shootings a lot of action going on um and uh you know i got in the actually but for the grace of god i'm i i'm so lucky i had a i had one shooting i had a burglar pull the knife on me and and i shot him in the hip and then and then it was only a few weeks later um my partner and i we rolled up they said there was a there was a guy shooting up a bar and it was, ironically, it was the hole in the wall bar. It had a Western theme with like bullet holes painted on the outside of the bar. And like we roll up, my partner Fred Smith and I, and there's a group of uh, Mexicans there in a circle, about, you know, 10 of them. And as soon as we pull up, they they break like a cubby of quail and start running everywhere. And, and I jump out and one of them's carrying a big black pistol. Is a Smith and Wesson Model 59, which has like 15 round magazine, and I. This is the worst scenario. As a law enforcement officer, you know what I'm saying. The worst scenario you can be in is to be chasing a guy who has a gun, because you, you can't shoot him in the back. And action is quicker than reaction. All he has to do is turn, and he can nail you before you can react. So I'm chasing him, and uh, he runs around the corner of a building, and I turn and look, and he's pointing the gun at me, and click. I was so lucky he had just run out of ammo. He had shot up this bar. And uh, so anyway, I I, I, <coughs> I dived into some bushes, and we eventually caught him, and he got arrested and everything. But they had an article about this in the uh, Dallas Morning News, and my brother read it. And uh, I found out later he called my dad, and he said, Dad, we got we to gotta get – um, guy out of out of Dallas Police Department. He's going to get killed. This is a second shooting incident he's involved in. And uh, I found out later he came to me and he said, "I'll double your salary. Come to work for me." He had an, he had a small exploration oil company in Midland, Texas. So uh, he talked me into it because I had a daughter and I thought, well, I think he's going to double my salary. I was really reticent to leave law enforcement, but uh, I did it. So I I worked for him for a year as a petroleum landman out in West Texas. And I said, Greg, I don't have a geology degree or petroleum engineering. I don't know what to do. You know, and he said, well, you're an investigator. You just go to the, find out who owns the mineral rights for us. So anyway, I did this for about a year and then he and his wife got a divorce and his wife got half the company. And then about three months after that, the price of oil dropped from $40 to $14 a barrel. And I said, Greg, you can't afford to have me working for you anymore. And I went back to grad school at the university of Texas 
to get a master's degree in petroleum land management. And while I was there, I, I, I really missed law enforcement. You know, I, I, I really missed it. You know, as you know, once it gets in your heart, you know, you don't get rich, but you, you has, you know, it's a real adrenaline rush. And uh, I saw an ad in the newspaper, it's just a fluke at the campus newspaper, University of Texas, for the CIA. And I thought, well, you know, that would be pretty exciting. You know, you know unbeknownst to me at the time, CIA is not law enforcement, but uh, I can talk more about that. But anyway, I got lucky on the exam and I got hired by the CIA as an agent in the uh, Office of Security. And well, I worked okay, for- hold on. You're you're glossing over way too much. It's like okay, I got hired by the CIA, and then I, me and James Bond went on missions. It, first of all, did you run into any naked people at the CIA? Because we have a story. <laughs> we have a story of a lady who went to the CIA looking for Agent Penis. She got finally got arrested. <laughs> no, uh, but hey, let, let's. Let's wheel back though to the process of applying. We've had one other person who's worked for the agency on with us, and uh, she started off as a case officer and then went to the FBI. Um, but with you, wh- what was the, what was the process like of applying for the FBI? You were more of an overt position, right? So it wasn't like they were the position wasn't to be a case officer or an intelligence officer. Well, no, actually, I, I uh, this is what people don't understand. Uh, you know, the general public, they think CIA is like Mission Impossible and you're dangling from wires and evading laser beams and, and breaking into safes. <laughs> and, you know, in reality, it's uh, what people don't understand is there's only about 10 percent of the CIA who are case officers or spies. You know, most of them are engineers and analysts and secretaries. And then there's another about 10%, which were in the unit I was, which is called the Office of Security. And the Office of Security is is uh, actually, the, the case officers don't carry guns. The Office of Security are the only ones who carry guns. And uh, they, they are kind of like internal affairs in DEA or FBI. They are the counterintelligence agents. They investigate the agents and, 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 and uh, moles. And that's why polygraph is so important for CIA, because it's not like in DEA, you know, we have informants. Well, we can always go to trial. And, and if they, you know, commit, you know, they have to tell the truth in trial or they can, you know, have, have arrest for perjury. Uh, whereas in CIA, you're never going to trial. I mean, this is all covert stuff. So the only way you have a guy say he's a colonel in the Iraqi Air Force and we have a case officer ta- told him to give you $100,000 to tell us where the Scud missiles in southern Iraq are located. The only way to verify he's telling you the truth is, is you know, to meet him covertly in a hotel in Vienna or something and, and give him a polygraph. So uh, polygraph is extremely important for CIA, even, you know, to, to verify that these these uh, spies were, were buying information from or telling the truth. And also we to check our own people to see that they aren't becoming moles. Hey, real quick, before you get too far into this, what year did you start at the agency? Uh, I started, uh, let's see, 1982, 1982. And I, I only worked for... Three years, 1982 to 1985. Did you ever know a guy named James Olson? Molson? James Olson? James Olson. Not that I remember. Not that I remember. James ended up being the the head of counterintelligence for the CIA before the Alder James case. You know, that's that's when it changed, too, because then the FBI came in. Uh, he was chief of station in Vienna. He was the one that got uh, Clayton Lone Tree approached. But uh, I, that's what I was going to ask you. That was 
him and I talked about the elder James case about what he was trying to do and some of the things he was prohibited from doing. Um, cause that was a, that was an interesting case, but I, I, I digress, uh, drinking game number two, there you go back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So how long did it take you to get on the agency? Uh, that took about, uh, about, oh, I think six to eight months to get hired. And, uh, I tell you the CIA were actually the toughest hiring process of, of any of the agencies I ever worked for. Of course, see, see, when I was with FBI, I was just a support employee. Um, and you know, they just do an interview, but with CIA, you have a psychological interview, you have a psychiatrist interview, you, you have a background investigation and they, and they give you tests, you know, really, uh, cognitive functions tests. And of course, this was way back in 1982. I don't know if they still, you know, what, what the process is like now. And then, of course, the toughest part is passing the polygraph. Did you have to move back to D.C. for this? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I went through, went through uh, tra- training in, in D.C. Now, <clears throat> as I was saying earlier, you know, people don't understand that the Office of Security is not spies. They're they're like like internal affairs to you know they handle the the protection for the director like secret service for the director they have security of the buildings they install alarms and that type of thing in the buildings uh anything security related and also doing the background investigations and polygraph exams you know and uh, uh, but what people don't understand is CIA has no law enforcement authority you don't have authority to arrest anybody you know it's uh intelligence is very different world from law enforcement and, uh, you know, like uh, there were a couple of times I was guarding uh, Director Casey and I, ha- I was armed with a firearm. And I thought to myself, you know, I just really, I don't have any authority to arrest anybody. I'm, it's going to be a civilian arrest, you know, and I didn't feel very comfortable with that. Well, armed with a gun, there is no arrest. You just shoot them. Um, <laughs> you know, on, there's no arrest. They just lay there on the ground until the ambulance shows up. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, if, if you get into a scuffle and and you know you you, you injure somebody in a fist fight, who's trying to you know, it, <clears throat> I, I there's just a lot of scenarios where you're sticking your neck out with a citizen's arrest, you know. Mm-hmm. And they want to kind of keep things, yeah. You know, you don't really want to have a lot of commotion going on. Hey, guess what? We just got into a fight with the CIA, to, you know, the director of Central Intelligence and his gang. So that wouldn't make for a good headline. Well, did, I mean, did I, you ever I, have any experience like that? No, no. I, I, I mean, that would be extremely rare. I never. I don't think there's ever been a case of somebody trying to uh, assassinate or assault a CIA director. But, but uh, you, you know, they, uh, and, and I'm sure they've changed a lot in the CIA by now. Who was DCI when you were on? Oh, I'm trying. Gosh, I'm trying to remember. Um, you didn't know there was going to be a cognitive test on this podcast either, did you? <laughs> it's been, it would have been who, whoever it was in 1982 to 85. I'm trying to remember. I think, oh, well, Casey for a while, while I was in there, you know, and, Casey and I, was I one, liked he, him. He passed away from the brain tumor, right? Right, right. But he was a good guy. I, I had to stand in a hallway, you know, when he was in a hotel room in San Francisco a few times. And I remember he was really down to earth. He thanked me for being out there and, and, uh, I, I really liked Casey. I have a name for you that you might, John LaPlume. Yeah, I've heard him, uh, but I've heard of him, but I, I never knew him. I never met him. Or Alex Kirchner. Uh, but, but John was, John at one point guarded Casey, I think when he was in the hospital. So that, anyway, just small world. Anyway, uh, that was not a digression. That was part of the story. You don't get to drink for free on that one. But um, 
but you were doing the security, but you also said that you ended up doing polygraphs. You said the polygraph was the toughest thing to pass. Tell us about the experience of going through a CIA polygraph. What's, what's that like? Well, you know, uh, well, let me digress slightly. I was, the first uh, two years of my CIA time were as a field agent doing background investigations and uh, I, I just a, a side detail guarding the director a couple times. And then uh, I, I got lucky. I got transferred to become a polygraph examiner. I requested that because, that you know, that that was uh, uh, some really good training. And uh, the, the polygraph, the thing to remember about polygraph is it's only as good as the examiner. You know, the people don't realize a polygraph is just a tool. And, you know, what it does, it measures the blood flow. It measures, they, they have galvanic skin response to measure. They send a little electrical current through your hand. And minute differences in sweat are picked up because when someone's lying, they tend to, to sweat more. And the, the bottom line on polygraph is that, that it's only as good as the examiner. It's just a tool to help you see what's causing this guy stress because it boils down to the old fight and flight syndrome. You know, in the old days, even a caveman, he sees, he sees a saber-toothed tiger and he either runs or fights. And it changes your blood pressure, your adrenaline rate, and all these other physical factors. Well, our bodies, even though our minds are very different, our bodies haven't changed that much since the days we were cavemen. We still react to, to, to a threat. And it's the same way when somebody lies, uh, unless they're, you know, uh, a psychopath, they, they, a sociopath may not be picked up by the polygraph. We hope that the, the you know, if or if you go to a mental institution, a guy thinks he's Napoleon, you give him a polygraph, say, are you Napoleon? He's going to pass the test, you know? But if somebody has a conscience... Yeah, that's why I say most people think that, oh, you know, uh, they, they fail to realize that the polygraph, like you say, measures response to stress, you know, to deception. But if you're associated, so how do you beat a polygraph, especially like some of the serial killers and ones that they polygraph, they can pass it because they're true sociopaths. They feel no emotion. It does not affect them. And they believe it. You know, they believe, like you say, I'm Jesus Christ, I'm Napoleon. Um, so how'd you pass your polygraph? <laughs> well, you you were. <laughs> I guess, I guess uh, even a blind hog finds corn once in a while. You know, I, I was lucky I passed the polygraph. But uh, there are three professions the polygraph is less reliable with. You, you want to guess what those are? Uh, prostitution. Uh, being from Kansas, DEA agent, <laughs> <laughs> politicians. Actually, what are they? <laughs> Actually, lawyers, salesmen, and undercover police officers—not uniformed police officers, but undercover police. Those three professions, I've found the polygraphs less reliable. And you know why that is? Because those three professions—they well, lie almost lie. every day. Yeah. They ever almost every day they they lie about something. So they some of them for profit, some of them because it's part of the job. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's it's less reliable with those professions. But you know some people think that that uh, polygraph is not that reliable when it's it's uh, you know witch doctor stuff. But I tell you, over ninety percent of the people that I tested that reacted on the polygraph, I ended up with a confession. Think ninety percent. If they reacted, I got a confession. Now, if somebody, and you know, so it's it maybe ten percent. You know, uh, 
weren't guilty, but 90%, that's pretty reliable. I mean, that's the vast majority of people who get disapproved, get disapproved because of polygraph, you know, and the, it, it, people don't lie about, you know, if someone lied about something they did, you don't want to hire them anyway, you know, so, so it is pretty reliable, but a lot of times uh, the reaction was not to the, well, let me give you an example. It can also be used to clear people. Okay, like I had a, a attractive little gal was applying to be a secretary at CIA headquarters. She was only, I think, 21 years old, and I asked her the question about crimes related to sex, and the needle was jumping all over. And uh, I, I calmed her down and said, well, what are you thinking about when I ask you that question? Well, it turned out it took me an hour of talking to her and calming her down. I found out she'd been raped about, you know, a year before the exam. And so I said, good, just I'll change the question. Aside from what you told me, have you ever been involved in a sex crime? And she got cleared and we hired her. So it can also be used to clear people, you know, and, 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 uh, and it's much more reliable with specific issues than a, than a background. Yeah, you can't generally say, you know, you know, and a lot of these are yes, no, right? So, uh, you know, because you don't want, you, you can't have open-ended questions. You're measuring a response. And like you say, the more, we did polygraphs a lot on uh, homicides, obviously. But one interesting thing is uh, I used to teach for John Reed and Associates. I was their first outside instructor. And one of the places I taught was out at the National Security Agency. So we had polygraphers from the agency there, Fort Meade, NSA, a lot of people doing what they call damage assessment. For the folks out there, damage assessment is what you're you have an you have espionage or you have a leak. Now you polygraph people as part of damage assessment. But they did they did a study, just so people put this in context, they did a study uh, and they found uh, guess what the most reliable indicator of deception is? It's not verbal, it's nonverbal. But when you combine verbal with nonverbal uh, with the case facts and put it all together, a properly trained interviewer utilizing both verbal and nonverbal behavior, correctly armed with the case facts, can detect uh, truthful or deceptive behavior 93% of the time. And that's what you get. You you combine that with the polygraph. And that's what I, like you were saying, we're not talking about admitting get into court, but a polygraph becomes a tool to expose things that you then go back and interview them on. The polygraph is not the end of it. It's usually a lot of times right at the beginning of a conversation with somebody. And it's also, as I was saying earlier, alluding to what you're referring to, much more accurate with a specific issue. For example, if someone is murdered with an ice pick, and the only people in the room are are are, are you and and uh, and and Steve, and so we know it's one of you two that did it. I, I ask you a question. I say, Steve, did you murder Sally with a gun? Did you kill her with a rope? Did you stab her with an ice pick? Did you hit kill her with a hammer? Well, only the murderer. That's why it's important. Police don't release the details of a crime to the general public, to media. So when you're polygraphing someone, oh, you, you want to ask about something only the murderer or, or the or the perpetrator knew. So only the murderer would know that it was used an ice pick to kill the person. So I asked Steve, you know, uh, did you kill her with a gun? And and no reaction. Did you kill her with a, with a hammer? No reaction. Then I, I say ice pick and the needle's jumping. Well, that's where it's good because only the murderer would know to react to that type of question. Hey, let me ask you too. There's a, so you hear stories and, and uh, I came on DEA when there was no polygraph required. Thank goodness. 
Uh, not that I had anything to hide, but you know. Uh, <laughs> Now's the time to cleanse your soul, Steve. Bring it forward. Let me get it all out. Well, you hear a lot of people that do go through a polygraph, and and they'll talk to you afterwards, and they're like, "That son of a bitch, you know, he kept accusing me of something and trying to get me to admit something I didn't do, and you know, then it was all over. I came back in, and they're like, you passed. Like it's no big deal. Is that a tactic where you accuse people and try to get them to to admit to something? Well, you. <clears throat> We don't like That's not to. a denial. That's not a denial. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, when you when you see stress to a certain type of question, you 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 want to pr- you want to pressure them on it, and and see what their their as as Morgan was talking about. You want to see what their body language is when you do that, because bo- as you said, the body language is just as important as as the the things they state. You know, but. Uh, you know, they, they're, when I was talking about that confession rate being 90%, there may be people that can take a polygraph and beat it, but if they react, you know there's something there. Like the little gal I was telling you had been raped. There's something there that's causing stress to the parasympathetic nervous system. That's make, So you, you have to pressure them to get them to explain what it is that's on their mind. And that may take hours of interview. I mean, I never gave a polygraph exam that lasted less than three hours, you know. And, uh, you know, that's why, um, you know, if you have a well-trained polygraph examiner, he works for CIA or FBI or, or DEA or, or Kansas Highway Patrol, I have no problem with taking one of those. But I would not feel comfortable taking a polygraph exam from some private de- detective that went through Uncle Willie's six-week polygraph school, you know, because there, there's, a, there's a lot of polygraph examiners that you don't know their qualifications. And uh, there's a lot of polygraph exam- If you don't take a lot of time to get to know that person's personality and what's on their mind and what's causing them to stress. If you aren't conscientious in that regard, then that hurts the reliability of the polygraph exam. Well, so, let's, so you let's wouldn't talk go, about that. You, you wouldn't go on the Maury Povich show and ask her, are you the re- really father of this I child? I went on Maury, told my story. <laughs> are you the baby daddy? Are you the baby daddy? Let's take a polygraph. Hey, let's rewind a little bit. Um, Cause I asked you, see, you, 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 carefully and deceptively avoided talking about your polygraph interview and made it about somebody else's. Let's talk about how was your polygraph interview when you went through the agency. You said that was one of the toughest things you did. Give us a little bit more detail. Well, because they they get into every aspect of your life, you know, um, you know, it's It's called a full, full scope lifestyle poly, right? And, you know, they, they check for four. I mean, being from Kansas, I didn't have many foreign contacts. The, the FCI part was a piece of cake. But, you know, when you've been a police officer, you know, there, there's a lot of stress, the things you've done. That's going to say, you going to tell us one of these stories? What stressed <laughs> you out besides the naked man? Well, now, here's, here's what happened, Murph. Okay. The polygrapher comes out and says, well, look, you did okay on some of this, but one of these questions, we've got an issue on. Which question do you think it is? <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you guys a really bizarre story. There we go. Okay. Is it worse than naked man hopping through it, your it, car on your first day? It, 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 it is just about worse. Anyway, when I was growing up, and my dad was a podiatrist, but he loved cattle. He wasn't like most doctors. He wouldn't go golfing. He, he loved to raise cattle. And I had to go out and help him uh, raise these registered pulled Herefords in Abilene, Kansas, on my grandma's ranch. And uh, 
anyway, my summer job was to go out there and help help my dad. And my dad had these registered, he would order this semen from this champion bull down in Georgia. And we'd have to and, and actually like going downhill. Oh, okay. <laughs> So anyway, I, I think that's why I got hired. My CIA interview, I told them the story, and they they died laughing. They said, "Okay, you're hired." But but anyway, nobody would make something like this up. Come on. Yeah. So anyway, I would go and and uh, we'd have to bring the bull in and get the vet, and the vet would put the semen into the bull. And the trouble is, it only worked half the time. So my dad and I would go to K State University to agriculture professors, and we said, "What can we do to increase the percentages?" Because the, the, this semen costs $500 a shot from this champion bull, you know, in the 1960s, that was a lot of money. And they said, well, you need to get a gomer bull, a marker bull. My dad and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, it's this, what we do, we get some scrawny little Holstein bull, they're real horny little bulls, and we put, we put a bottle of blue ink, like a big pen under their neck, and you put that bull loose with your registered pole turford cows and heifers, and when they get in heat, he jumps on the back and marks blue ink on their back. And my dad and I say, well, that's kind of cra crazy. But then what's to keep him from impregnating these cows? So what we do is surgery. We sew his penis so it's sticking out the back. And he can't mount and impregnate them. <laughs> and this is a true story. This is a true story. It doesn't matter. It's a good story. Just go. <laughs> so anyway, it works great. Success rate goes up 95% of the time now. Uh, I go out, every, my day job was to ride out in the in the field and see which cows had blue ink on their back and bring them in, call the vet, and, and we'd impregnate these cows. And it was making my dad a fortune because he's 95% reliable. And, and until one day, our neighbor, an old German neighbor, Hank Coleman, had a feud with my dad. And he called my dad up and he said, Doc Hargreaves, we got a problem. And I said, well, what are you talking about? I'm listening on the extension phone. And he says, well, you, you've got some scrawny little Holstein bulls out there mounting your cows. And my dad, not thinking, he says, well, uh, thank you, Hank. But what you don't understand is that's a marker bull, and he's had his penis sewn backwards so he can't impregnate them. And I hear this dead silence on the line. He says, then I hear, now, I know you think I'm some stupid redneck, but do you think I'm going to believe some <laughs> bullshit story about a, about a bull with his penis sewn backwards? And he slams down the phone. I come out, and he's cut all the fence on the ranch and everything. So. That's the marker yeah. story. That's what I did wow. in my summer when I was a kid, when I was a teenager in Kansas. So here's the here's the question I got you. So you're in there with the CIA polygrapher. What question did they ask you to bring up the story about the bull semen <laughs> from Georgia? <laughs> Oh, I tell you what, it's the lifestyle, Polly. Have you ever had sex with animals? And here we go. Well, and that makes me wonder, should I be asking that from about Morgan because he's from Kansas also? I mean, is that just a question you ask people in Kansas? Well, I tell you no. what, you, when you're a polygraph examiner, you've heard everything. I mean, I, I they, the guys in the clearance division used to laugh because I'd have the most bizarre confessions. You know, one guy that was having sex with a horse. And and what? we had another another guy that was stealing from the collection plate. You know, he'd asked him about theft, and he he, he confessed oh. every every Sunday he'd steal the money out of the collection plate. I mean, you hear everything, and nothing surprises you. What do you, what was he doing? Palming the bills as it comes across the front. <laughs> I guess he'd take the money out of the collection plate and pocket it, and or half of it, so it wouldn't be noticed. I know. Oh my gosh! That, you, on the so police he, department, we finally convinced the chief. I said, "Look, we're all detectives. We're all trained in interview and interrogation. Let us interview 
the applicants before you send them on to the polygraph because they would charge. We had a guy who he, he had a little bit more training than Joe Bob's, you know, six week course, but they would still polygraph. People said, look, let us interview them before you send them on to it. And you know what? We probably saved the department, you know, thousands of dollars because they just, oh, used yeah. to just send people onto the polygraph and spend money on it. We said, so we would weed out people and we had people show up, had one guy working in the jail down in um, Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico end up talking to him, find out he's a peeping Tom. And people go, how do you get this? I said, to your point, you watch the body language, you know, you realize you'll be polygraphed on this, but have you ever committed a crime that you were never caught for? Uh, What do you mean by crime? Well, what do you think, Skippy? You work in a jail, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, you mean the the ones that statute of limitations hasn't run out on or the ones that have? (laughs) But so how long how long were you in for your polygraph with the agency and did you pass it the first time? Yeah, I did. I was uh, my poly, I think mine was only 3 hours. Um which sounds like a real long time, but it's about average or 2 or 3 hours. But I was I was only in polygraph for for a year, one year. Um and what what happened was uh and and you know, the people in CIA are really good people. Uh I I really enjoyed working there and uh you know this stuff you see about uh CIA, as your your guest John was talking about the FBI agent you were talking to the other day was saying, you know this stuff about the CIA dealing drugs. I think what the deal there. Yeah, I mean, I actually find that hard to believe because, I mean, uh, Levine might disagree with me, but uh, I mean, we fired people who were using drugs. I mean, I had a lot of people who were heavy drug users who we wouldn't hire. I think what was going on there when you talk about, uh, you know, Colonel North and the Sandinistas and all that stuff, I think what it is, is when they were fighting a war against the communists, what people don't understand in the CIA, the media says a CIA agent did this. Well, a CIA agent is the same as a DEA informant. Okay. Right. Bingo. You know, and and, uh, in the CIA, they don't call them an agent. You call them a case officer. Except the guys in the office of security, we were special agents, but we're not out in the field that much, you know. The uh, so what I think happened was we, we have all these mercenaries. You're not going to get choir boys to be mercenaries flying dr- guns into Nicaragua, and they're flying these guns in, and 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 these are these are you know uh, pretty rough customers, and you know they're offering these, them. These are guys they, to make looking to make a buck anywhere they can. Exactly. You know, and I, I don't think the CIA was authorizing them to fly dr- drugs back. They were just doing this on their own. Just like Steve knows, we have informants go bad all the time. And uh, that, that, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. But that's my speculation of what was going on was they had a bunch of informants that went bad fly, flying these planes in and said, well, hell, we can make a lot of money flying drugs back. We're flying guns in. We might as well fly drugs back. And to your point, Guy, people don't understand the terminology. When you say agent, that is somebody who is a non-CIA employee. You know, basically non-CIA. They're they're like they're an asset. They're they're committing. If you have an agent in place, they're actually you know like say during the Cold War, you'd have an agent, a Russian agent. They were committing treason. They were spying against their country for the United States for Team America. And but that's where the confusion comes. People hear agent and they don't understand the distinction between intelligence or case officer and agent. And they think agent is a CIA person as opposed to an informant or an asset or somebody in the field. 
Well, you know, Morgan and I were just, we were talking yesterday, we did some recordings for our, for our Patreon subscribers, and we were discussing future topics, and one was to describe the difference between law enforcement, the intelligence community, and the Department of Defense, or the military. So, I mean, that was a great explanation you just gave, and a great explanation of what potentially happened down in Central yep. America, whereas everybody, you know, when Jaime and I, when we talked about the CA, we had terrible experience with them in Colombia, but it was just the chief of station. I mean, the, the worker bees, the ones we were out in the field with, the guy that was up in, in uh, Medellin with us, I think everybody's, the, the the name of the year that year was Paul, because everybody from CIA, their name was Paul, all the guys. you know. And it, so you never know whose name is, what their real names are, but uh, we give the CIA grief because of that chief of station. But the worker bees, we got along great with them, we have no problems. And I personally, I think the CIA is one hell of an organization they catch a lot of grief from the media, but they can't defend themselves because the mission of the, their mission secret. is secret. You can't come out and talk about shit like that. Well, you know, uh, I think their biggest success, you've probably seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, you know, when they supplied Stinger missiles, you know, it turned the, that became Russia's Vietnam, you know. And uh, you have one guy hiding behind a rock with a Stinger missile, takes out a $10 million Soviet aircraft, and it changed the course of the war. Those hide helicopters were going down like in flames, just all you know, all the time. And um, but 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 see, that's interesting. So, but you were there, like I said, you did the polygrapher stuff. But you're there three years. You said three and a half. What what caused you to leave? What opportunity came up that said, "Hey, um, I'm going to leave being a spy, a double knot spy, and uh, go do something else." Well, you know, it's it's funny because my brother, my brother and my parents were the only ones who knew I was really working for the CIA. You know, you have these covers like you're working for, you know, the what army. What was your cover or, story? Well, I, I I was an army contractor. You know, you can't tell anybody when you when, when you you know unless you're one of these engineers or something. You know, if you're in the office of security or if you're a, a case agent, you can't tell anybody you work for the CIA. You know, it's undercover, but. Uh, uh, my, bro my brother and parents, the only ones knew, my brother said, why in the world are you going to leave CIA? And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. And it was good people, but uh, I missed law enforcement. I missed arresting people. And, and you know, you don't have the same gratification in, in, in my mindset, you know, because uh, you're living a secret life, you know, and, and you can't talk about what you do. And, uh, it's, it's very stressful if, if you're, you know, now, and the other thing about CIA people, a lot of people don't understand is the case officers. It's not like James Bond. Your job is to seduce people into selling their country out. You know, you go to a cocktail party at the embassy and you try and talk people into, into, uh, selling their country out. It, it, the only ones, the case officers don't carry guns. There is a section in CIA course this was a long time ago things may have all changed but uh, former military guys that carry guns they go over to afghanistan fighting terrorism and stuff training the foreign militaries but uh it, it's it's not at all like you see in 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 the television and movies well, i was just gonna say you get in law enforcement and you get bit by the bug and and you know we we promote this on the on the on our game of crimes here is that the vast vast majority of people that go into law enforcement are just wanting to help people you know, we're public servants and that's, that's what we all want to do. And then, you know, we get one bad apple comes along and the media just continually portrays that for the next 18 years. And that's what everybody thinks cops are. And that's, that's a, a primary purpose. We have game of crimes is to show the, the true stories that go on inside of law enforcement. 
There's a shameless and, uh, plug for you know, our show. You want, like say you want, most of us, I think, we have some bad apples, but I think most of them just want to make the world a better place. But also, I have to admit it, I had a little bit of mercenary. People don't, wouldn't believe it when I told them, but uh, DEA and FBI and Secret Service, federal law enforcement, gets 25% higher pay than the CIA because you have this availability pay. And so you don't get soon, the a, what they call the AUO, right? The administrative exactly, uncontrolled exactly. overtime. And I had, you know, I had daughters that I wanted to send to college, and so money was important to me. As soon as I moved over, I had a twenty-five percent pay raise. Plus, the retirement program is better. Now, were you were you on? Because a lot of times too, there's a, another thing a lot of people don't know too. But like with some of the case officers, you're like on. Uh, some of these folks are technically on contract. They're not technically employees as much as they're like on a five-year contract or something. You know, so there's been some. Um, it's kind of it's one of those things is like you know when you go out and you're working like say the non-official cover people you're working somewhere and you're getting a salary or even if you're working uh diplomatic cover like say as of somebody with the secretary or the uh, ag department you only get to keep your cia salary you don't get to keep you know anything above that so you might be in a two hundred thousand dollar a year job technically only making sixty thousand dollars a year so you got to turn over one hundred and forty thousand back to the government yeah, actually, people don't. You're right. There's CIA has some companies that actually make a lot of money, you know, um, and and the but there is also another group, a very specialized group called the Knox, non-official cover, and these are the guys who are the very top case officers, and they come through and they have no affiliation with the government whatsoever, you know, they because they're they're the they're the real closest thing to James Bond. These guys, they get through the, the farm in Virginia, finish the training, and they go out into the world with no association, totally undercover. No diplomatic cover, no, no. lifeline. Yeah. You know, most case officers, they're assigned to the to the embassy in Moscow as a cultural attache or, or, or some government. State department cover, or yeah, something. State yeah. department or 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 U.S. Army, like I was, you know, but the non-official cover, those guys, they are ghosts. You know, they have no uh, association, but that's a Where very... Where do the paychecks come from? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they do that. Probably from one of the private companies that the CIA runs. Well, and if, and if I did know, I couldn't tell you because that's probably classified information, you know. <laughs> but, what, but what I can tell you, Murph, though, there are some places when you become a knock, uh, when you're a knock and you're you're in certain companies, there are a couple people in the company that know. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's tightly controlled. But yeah, because you still have to. But guess what? They still got to do their day job and then go out at night and do their night job. It's not like you show up. It's not like a, 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 a you know, one of the Gambino crime families, you know, just show up jobs, you know, it's just, uh, you show up and you don't have to do anything. They still have to do their day jobs, uh, and yeah. then go out at night and do their regular work. But, uh, technically that's what I've heard. That's what somebody told me one time. Back to you. Okay. Back, back to you guy. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, uh, so anyway, it was a very rewarding experience, but very stressful, but, but the people I worked with at CIA, at least in the office of security, they were really good people and very admirable people. But as Steve mentioned, I just missed law enforcement. I, I, I miss being out there putting handcuffs on guys. And and uh, after three years, you kind of get tired of living a secret life. And also spending eight hours a day interrogating people, them screaming at you and everything else and crying. It, so was most it, of it, your work done out at Langley or did you have to go different places to do this work? 
Um, well, when I was a polygraph examiner, it was at CIA headquarters in Langley. Yeah. And when it, before I was a polygraph examiner, I was in the San Francisco field office uh, doing background investigations on, uh, you know, like scientists working for Lockheed or, or some of these other uh, aircraft companies and so forth. Um, you know, some guy, he's going to be a rocket scientist or, or work on some satellite or something for, for CIA. You know, they do, we do background investigations on them to give them a security clearance. When I was still on the job with DEA, because DEA became part of the intelligence community, um, we would go to Langley for meetings on certain things. And it was it was like pulling teeth to get in the property. And, you know, you had to have these appointments made and, and you had to uh, send your security clearances over. I mean, it was, a, it was a pain in the butt to go over there, to quite, be quite honest. And it was the same at NSA up at Fort Meade. Then after I retired, I got bored, so I started doing background investigations for uh, – not state, uh, OPM. So uh, most of the ones I was doing because of my, I still had my clearances from the government, you know, was uh, was renewal background investigations for mostly CIA contractors. But a lot of those were retired CEA personnel. And it was, I would call a secretary and I'd say, hey, I need to come in and do your background. And she'd say, okay, I'll, I'll get you on the list. And I'd pull up and I'd show them my little OPM ID card. Hey, come on in. Have a you know, have a good time. Where before, when I was actual government employee, I was it was almost getting <laughs> orifice searches to come in on the property, and, and have then to pass I could get your in, clearances could, over and go through well, I could all the rules. I could get in Langley, and there were certain places I could just walk around the building. You know, I mean, there's certain places you couldn't. You knew where not to go. But I thought, holy cow, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> oh, you know, when they created CIA, I mean DEA, when they created DEA, a lot of people don't know they actually went over to CIA and offered a lot of CIA agents came over to DEA when they created it, especially for the foreign posts, because they had these guys already overseas. And they offered them a grade raise to come over to DEA. And uh, in the beginning, not now, but in, when they originally created DEA, they were, they were my, it's my understanding, that's way before I was you know, uh, in, in DEA, but it's my understanding they hired quite a few CIA agents to become DEA agents because of, uh, especially for the overseas posts of duty. Yeah, I think. Uh, did you know Joe Keefe? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I Joe think Keefe. he was one of the guys that came over for CIA. He was—he's a legend. He's a legend. Yeah, more yeah. an unbelievable man. All right, so let's talk about. So once you made that decision, what was your? So was DEA your next stop then after CIA? Yeah, because uh, DEA, uh, in my opinion, DEA, you get more action than any other federal law enforcement agency, especially in, you know, with this drug war going on. And uh, uh, so it, it was just very attractive to me. And also, you know, I, I saw uh, drugs as being a greater threat than the communists were at that point in time. So what year what, did you get on DEA? Yeah, uh, I got hired by DEA in uh, 1985. And uh, I was like the first, only the first or second class to go through the FBI. They, they had just moved the uh, basic training for DEA agents from Glencoe, Georgia to, uh, to the FBI Academy. And uh, uh, I was one of like the, only the second class of, of I think, of, of BA-42 
basic agents class 42 to go through. We, they, they had joined the FBI training with the, We had the same firearms ranges and as the FBI, although, you know, the, the D I think it's no secret DEA and FBI kind of squabble like the Marines and the Navy, you know, we, you know, up there in the boardroom, there were some near fist fights, but, uh, it was, it was an interesting experience. The boardroom that's, that's code for bar. <laughs> yeah. The, the bar. <laughs> All right. So, so as we ask with everybody who's gone through the uh, DEA uh, Academy, uh, let's talk about, were you ever sanctioned and had to write a memo as a result of that during your training? You know, I was lucky. I never, I never did get disciplined for anything that I can remember in the, oh, in that the, I can remember. Oh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's dive on this question. I have no recollection, Your you Honor. You can't tell me or you won't tell me. There's a difference. I can't, yes. I can't confirm can... or deny. <laughs> Oh, but you didn't have to write any memos. Not that I, not that <laughs> not I, not that remember. I recall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, not you did, that I was, that, must not. not that I was that well behaved of a, of a trainee, but I just, I guess I was lucky. Well, you learned your, you, you, you learned your tradecraft from CIA and you just learned how to get away with it and pin the blame on somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> how to cover up. Yeah. So when you went through your training, uh, how was your process? Because everybody's uh, things change over the years. So how was your process of picking your first post uh, of duty? Did you get did you get to submit your uh, wish list, uh, or did they assign it to you? And what and what did you pick, and where did you end up going? Well, I uh, I picked Virginia Beach because that's uh, you know because I was already in of Virginia, saying I thought well that sounds pretty good. Of course, I, I didn't get it. Hardly anybody gets their their pick, as you're probably well aware. Um, and they sent me to Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, well, that's close. That's who did you pick? Omaha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you Damn. know, th th this is the funny thing about it is actually I didn't mind because my parents were in Kansas. And it was only a, a two and a half hour drive to to Junction City from Omaha, you know, and 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 uh, and also the other, you know, all the big, all these guys like Steve, the big city guys, you know, they say, oh my God, you're going out there in the middle of nowhere. I said, hell, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska, a GS thirteen is making about the same salary as the Attorney General for the state of Nebraska, you know, whereas in <laughs> New York City. You know, you only get paid 15% more for being stationed in New York City, and you're making about the same as a sergeant in the New York City Police Department. And you you're know, on the, food stamps, and, you know, and the yeah, traffic sucks. You yeah, know, I, I really didn't mind being sent to Omaha because the cost of living was dirt cheap. I mean, I could buy a mansion in Omaha for what you'd pay for a one-bedroom condo in, in California or New York. And with, oh, yeah. with uh, three daughters, that was an important thing to keep in mind. So now, which which job were you on when you got married? Uh, oh, God, I I got married right. Uh, that's when I was an editorial clerk at at uh, FBI. So that I got married. Your way wife? Back. Yeah, you meet her at, at FBI headquarters. No, I met her uh, at the University of Kansas. We were both in journalism school at the University of Kansas, and I was married to her for twenty five years. Had three daughters, and uh, unfortunately, we broke up a few years ago, uh, well, 14 years ago, and I met a wonderful woman, uh, Veronica Polidori, and I've been married to her since 2008, and I've gained a lot of weight because she's a fantastic Italian cook. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, I bet you and, don't give her any shit, though, do you? Oh, no. no you ain't kidding. She's tough as nails. And uh, we, we, lived on, we, we lived, on a, lived on a ranch in Arizona that she owned, 
Uh, we lived there for years, kind of ties in with the marker bowl, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know what your mix, job man. was on the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, we we lived there. It was wonderful. It was, it was, we had, uh, you know, it was kind of like a desert oasis. We had catfish pond and a bass pond and all kinds of wildlife out there. And uh, the only bad thing was there were a lot of rattlesnakes. Oh, my God, I had to shoot a rattlesnake about every four weeks. And uh, the uh, one of my husky dogs got bit in the nose by one of the rattlesnakes. But anyway, to make a long story short, we, uh, we just sold the ranch uh, a, few, a couple months ago. Because uh, Veronica wanted to be with her daughter in Arkansas, so now, now we're in, we're in Arkansas. We're moving here and buying a new house here, and right in the process of resettling. Because uh, you know you have those grandkids, you miss them. That's why I'm in Orlando, brother. <laughs> yeah, and then you move down there, and they move away from you. Yeah, yeah. I, don't I, I don't know if it's me or my wife. It must be my wife. It couldn't be uh, me, right? <laughs> Yeah. Look around the room. Yeah. See who the problem. Hey, but, uh, so, but you go to Omaha. So what, cause you know, this is, this is interesting too, because a lot of people think just the Midwest is flyover country, but I know from my time on the police department, working with the DEA task force, we had guys, there was a lot of shit moving through the Midwest. You talk everything from cocaine to marijuana to meth, you know, it, there were big transshipment points. 81 was the only unbroken, uh, North-South U.S. highway in the United States. It would go from the Mexican border to the Canadian border, U.S. 54 operation pipeline. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in the Midwest, planes landing on old army airfields. So what did you, so when you went up to Omaha, what did they, wh what were you getting involved in? What were you working? Well, it was interesting because when I first came to Omaha, uh, it, it, it was like being stationed with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police because I was the only, there were only two of us for the entire state of Nebraska. You know, and, you know, in Miami, they might a have what? What, four, four. Yeah. It, when I when they transferred me to Omaha, we only had two DEA agents to cover the entire state of Nebraska. And you'd have no what, four or five hundred in Miami alone, you know. So it was yeah, good. A it was, hundred, yeah. You know, it was being a new agent. It was kind of good because it gave me a lot of responsibility. I didn't have to, you know, listen on wiretaps and do mundane jobs for the senior agents. But uh, it was it was. Uh, there, there were, as you said, we had a case where they had a big semi truck that was filled with cocaine and they, the, the, the Nebraska Highway Patrol intercepted it and the Air Force helped us out. They, they had one of those uh, huge Air Force. Starlifters, I think. Yeah, Starlifter. And they drove the semi into the Starlifter because, you know, we, they, they, Nebraska State Patrol and DEA had, you know, interrogated this guy for a couple of days. So it was behind schedule. So they flew this semi to New York City. And uh, so that it would get there in time so they could do the bust. So there, there were some really, really interesting. But, you know, the funny thing is when, when people think of Nebraska and they think of Kansas, uh, you know, the, the ironic thing is the biggest LSD lab and the biggest fentanyl lab ever seized in DEA history were seized in Kansas. You know, so the, these little rural areas sometimes have a lot more going on than people realize. Explains a lot about Morgan. I'm, you just put a whole new light on this guy. <laughs> I have. Ne hey, look, I, I, I actually could truthfully say on my background, when I got polygraphed doing some work uh, later out here in Virginia, I was polygraphed, have you ever used drugs? I said, well, let's be clear, because you know how it is with the here. I want to help you craft the question correctly so you can ask me. 
you will find uh, I have used cocaine. And they go, what do you mean by used? I, I said, well, I broke my nose during the Higher Patrol Academy. I mean, my nose was like literally moved underneath my left eye. I took an elbow to the nose. So to cauterize the blood, what do they use? They use hospital grade cocaine, a blue oh, yeah. solution that swabs on there. So I said, if you ask me, yes, uh, you will find, but it's not in there illegally. It's in there legally. So uh, anyway, my, my one drug story. There you go. Everybody's fascinated by that. There we go. Digression. Drinking game number three. Oh, yeah. Go back to sleep. <laughs> hey, well, but yeah. So we're going to get into that, especially the LSD one. But what other cases? So what was it like being two guys for the entire state? I mean, you had to be going then all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, to drive from one side of Nebraska to the other to meet with a sheriff, you know, it was it, 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 you were pretty Eight hours. Yeah, you know, it, you, you were pretty isolated out there, you know. So you, you know, I had a lot of great lays on with, uh, you know, a lot of, especially the Nebraska State Patrol were great working with DEA, you know, out there, and uh, it had a lot of great lays on. And then after I was there for a few years, uh, we did get more agents in there, and uh, the uh, resident agent in charge of the Omaha office, he, sa he said, "Guy, we'd we'd like you to volunteer for." Operation Snowcap. And I said, Operation Snowcap? Well, you know, and he explained to me what uh, uh, that was all about. I guess they wanted to get guys with previous military experience or CIA experience like I had to go down to uh, raid these cocaine labs in South America. And uh, I volunteered for that. I did a couple tours with Snowcap so my, my wife and family could, could stay in Omaha while I was doing this crazy stuff. And, uh, but Actually, it's this month in August, uh, I'd like to do a dedication to uh, Frankie Fernandez and his Operation Snowcap team that passed away in August of 1994. Uh, they, were, they were flying in a small twin-engine Casa aircraft and flew into a box canyon, and all five of them perished. Um, they were, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest loss of life DEA has ever had in one thing. I mean, we've had a lot of agents killed in shootouts and so forth, but five agents at one time was a real catastrophe. And uh, I think about that every August because Frankie asked me to join him on that tour of duty. And but for the grace of God, I I, I told him I said I said Frank, you know, I've already done two tours, and I think this is like rolling craps in Vegas. Sooner or later, you know, I'm, we Your might number get gets called. Call. Yeah. You know, yeah, Meredith Thompson was on that on that flight. Uh, I was stationed down in Miami. She was one of our friends down there. That was horrible. There was there was actually one incident where more lives were lost, and that's when the DEA Miami office the the garage caved in onto the building, the parking garage. But it was mostly support personnel. And so I think you're right that you know five, five agents being killed in that aircraft is the greatest loss of life we've ever experienced in DEA at one time. As far as agents, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah, and so can you just tell us a little bit about Snowcap, what countries you went to, what the training you had to go through? I and mean, that's not something just you come out of the academy and go straight into Snowcap. Yeah, they uh, they were really good. I was impressed. Um, uh, as you know, Frank White is a real character. He he kind of ran the Snowcap. You know, he, he's been in more shootouts than any agent in DEA history, I think. And he's former military guy. And I think he was in Vietnam, one Bronze Star. And he... Uh, he was kind of our mentor and he made sure we went through some really good training. Uh, they sent us through the uh, U S army jungle warfare school in Panama. And uh, they, they sent us through uh, um, 
uh, Spanish language training in Glencoe, Georgia. And also we went through some demolitions training to blow up these labs, uh, demolitions training with the Marine Corps in Quantico. And I was part of this group called the Riverine Group. I never could figure out why they picked me. Being from Kansas, they picked me for for the Riverine Group. But they said, well, we saw you were a scuba diver, so so we thought at least we knew you know how to swim. And they they sent the Riverine Group also to the uh, to the uh, U.S. Navy SEALs training base in, at Coronado Island, and uh, that was. That was that was great because you know as I said when I was growing up I wanted to be uh, I was thinking about being a military officer and here I got to go through all these military schools with as a civilian so I didn't get harassed you know I, I looked out the window while we're learning how to use the M60 machine gun and all these poor Navy SEALs out there doing push-ups and sit-ups and and uh, you know we we get all this great training how to run Zodiac boats and didn't get have to get harassed you know but a kind of funny sidelight the Navy SEALs they they called us the manatees. Because <laughs> he said, you guys may not be seals. We were all like over 30 and, and some of us overweight, you know, and he, he said, you guys know how to shoot, but you can't swim worth a damn. And we're going to call you the manatees. So I thought that was kind of, <laughs> we were thinking about yeah, making, like a, a, making a patch for the, for the snowcat riverine group being a manatee, you know. But, the, but <laughs> That's uh, funny. I've never heard that. <laughs> so, so we, uh, <clears throat> So anyway, that was just, it was great. Snowcap was was an amazing experience. But, you know, they they we people don't understand. I don't think we could have done Snowcap in Columbia where, where Steve was. Uh, my God, we'd had body bags coming back because you had the FARC and and I mean, you know, and the Bolivians weren't really that aggressive. I mean, once in a blue moon, usually how it would work, we'd have some peasant come out of the jungle. And, you know, we give him, you say, we'll give you $500 to tell us where a cocaine lab is. Well, $500 to a, to a guy in the jungles of Bolivia would be like 50000 to the URI. And uh, we'd put a mask on him, a hood, and they'd get in a helicopter and we'd fly out there with a the team and we'd raid these cocaine labs. Uh, nine times out of 10, they would just run in the jungle and hide. Once in a while, they might come out and pop a few rounds as we're, we're you know, flying away. But uh, it wasn't like Colombia where, you know, it was open warfare. You know, in Colombia, uh, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard there were years in Colombia where he had 600 police officers killed in a single year. My God, in the United States, we have five times their population and we might have 100 and some killed. And, uh, it, you know, it was a whole different story in Colombia. It was. And in between the FARC and M19 and ELN, the different uh, revolutionary groups that were operating down there, and then you, you throw in the narcos on top of it, it really was the Wild West. But now, did you go to Bolivia or Peru, or did you go to both? Uh, no, I was just in Bolivia. Uh, my tours of duty were in Bolivia. Um no, I did. You know, there were times when, when I got into international training, I was also training the police in Colombia. Uh, you know, with international training, that was the best job I ever had in my life. My God, you fly around the world and you spend two weeks training police and they treat you like a king. You know, and all. I mean, uh, you know, I did a school in Lagos, Nigeria, and my God, you see two dead people on the side of the road just between the airport and the embassy. And I'm thinking, boy, drugs are about the last of your problems, you know, and, and, and there's so much poverty. And then, and then the next school's in Qatar where they have so much money that the uh, head of the narcotics unit comes out in a Range Rover and, and, and uh, he's in a sheik's outfit with a falcon on his shoulder taking me to the camel races. 
And uh, you see the real differences in the world. I mean, regular regular police officer in Qatar ha- have a brand new Mercedes Benz with blue lights on it. You know, uh, Americans don't realize the difference. You know, in, in countries around the world, as far as wealth and and law enforcement. And you go to some of those countries, and man, it really makes you appreciate where you live here in the U.S., doesn't it? Oh yes, you know, incredibly. You know, as nice as Colombia was, I it just I was offered. Um, Back when Michelle Linhart was the administrator, she offered, well, she asked me if I'd be interested in being the, the regional director for DEA in Colombia. And I, you know, I told her what living in, as much as I love Colombia, what it did for me is make me appreciate living in the United States. Yeah, you go to some of these armpits of the world. <laughs> I tell you, probably one of the worst places I went to just from a humanity standpoint was uh, Islamabad. And just looking at, you know, the way people were treated. I mean, there were some areas in India, too, that were bad. But, man, you're right. You get back on that plane, you land on U.S. soil, and you just want to get down and kiss the ground and go, man, you know. God. Uh, or do the Dorothy and Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. You know, click your heels three times. So, um, hey, but how long How long were you doing uh, snowcap? I mean, how many uh, years did that take you? Uh, well, I only did two tours of duty. Their tours are three months each. And, uh, well, I was in snow cap for like three years, I think. And the, the most dangerous, well, we did have a few shootouts in snow cap. Uh, Hope got in a sh- shot in the foot and we had a few guys, but, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the dangerous thing in Bolivia was, was the environment, the bugs and the snakes and the jaguars. And, you know, it, we had a lot of agents got parasites, you know, a, a, the uh, there's all kinds of uh, insects you know what one the the environment was more dangerous than the traffickers almost you know i mean we had a lot of guys got sick from uh, different parasites i had a group supervisor uh robert fredericks he was stationed in ecuador and he was walking down the street years later in in uh, i think connecticut and went into a grand mal seizure and uh they took him, they thought it was a brain tumor. They got ready to do a surgery, but fortunately they had a, a, a doctor who was tropical disease specialist said, let me do some more tests. And they found out he had a neurosister sarcosis. There's a certain type of pork. If you eat it, this bug gets in your system and these eggs go up in your brain and then they can hatch later and, and, and throw you. Into, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like a movie alien. Well, another alien. Yeah, like the movie Aliens, you know. Well, as a matter of fact, when I was down in the jungle down there, I uh, one night it was so hot and humid. I, I had, you know, we'd hang up a, you know, a a hammock between a couple trees to sleep in, so the bugs wouldn't get you. And I took the mosquito net off me because it was so damn hot. And this special forces sergeant who was with us, he said, "Hargreaves, you don't want to do that." I said, "What are you talking about?" Said next day he took me to the to the uh, special forces clinic down there in the jungle because the special forces were training the Bolivian police, but they couldn't go out in the raids because of the Mansfield and Bolin amendments. So they took old D they took DEA agents who used to have military experience to go out in the raids with the Bolivian police. But anyway, he showed me this, this uh, Bolivian, he had, he had a huge lump on his cheek and uh, they cut it open and tweezers pulling and pulling it. It was like a six inch worm they pulled out of his cheek and I said, what is that? They said, that's why you don't want to sweep without the mosquito net. There's a thing they call the pachichi bug here. While you're asleep, it'll, in, like a mosquito, it'll inject eggs under your skin. And it grows into these things. You can, you know, if you don't treat it and crawl in and, and eat your eyeball out, you know. So, oh, you know, as, as, aside, aside from the, 
traffickers, you had, you know, the poisonous snakes and the, all the, you know, insects that were. Uh, uh, note to self, take Bolivia threat. off my vacation list. <laughs> he makes you want to jump on a plane and head down there, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's, you know, but there are spots in Bolivia that are wonderful. That's the deep jungle, the triple canopy jungle, you know, that we're talking about there. These labs you're talking about, were they actually where they made the process, the cocaine, or was that the paste? Or what was the purpose of the labs in Bolivia? What stage of the production were they involved? Most of the labs in Bolivia were were paste. Well, first you have the pozo pits that make the paste. And then they have the base labs where they turn it into cocaine base. And then usually they take kilos of base and send it up to Colombia, where it's turned into the final product, cocaine hydrochloride, which is kind of ironic in a way uh john in your other interview was talking about crack cocaine well that's cocaine base because you know because base cocaine it burns at a lower temperature you can smoke it you can't smoke cocaine hydrochloride so i I, rather than turn it into crack i don't know why they don't just send kilos of base cocaine up you know but anyway they they turn it into the cocaine any ideas guy don't give them any ideas Well, they figured that up here out up here yeah. in the United States already. Well, speaking of ideas, uh, when I was later in international training, they sent me to Mexico with a team of guys from training office to train the Mexican Federal Police, you know, and Procura General de la República. They they had this new group, and uh, I, I was saying, well, y- y- my God, you know the corruption down there in Mexico. You're going to have us train these guys, you know, and. Uh, they said, no, the attorney general of Mexico met with Janet Reno and uh, said we should, we should train the Mexican federal police because what they need is training. And I said, okay, I, I'm a good soldier. I'll do whatever you order me to do. So I go down there. The first day of training, we have 140, 120 seats out in the audience there with books, like $200 worth of books at each seat. The first day of the school, only half of them even show up. Now, can you imagine – DEA Academy or Kansas Highway Patrol, half of your class doesn't even show up the first day of the academy. Oh, no. You know, or you wouldn't come back second day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and so then I look at you, haven't heard the good part. So then I look up, and by about 11 o'clock in the morning, all the books are gone, except for one or two. They're stealing each other's books. And then one of the instructors comes into me and says, God, you're going to believe this. They stole my book off the lectern in the front of the classroom. So I called back to Quantico. I said, are we out of our minds? I said, these guys are stealing each other's books. You think they aren't going to take a $50,000 bribe from a drug lord? So anyway, that was some good work of Janet Reno. And, you know, but the, well, the, the reason I'm telling you this story is because during the course of this training, they, when I started talking about methamphetamine, see, they, meth hadn't kicked off yet. It was just the biker gangs who were doing meth then. And I started talking about methamphetamine and how you could use $5,000 worth of chemicals and make $50,000 worth of methamphetamine in a trailer house outside of Kansas City. And you wouldn't need to pay thousands of peasants to pick coca leaves or or smuggling bribes or airplanes or customs smuggling. And they came to attention. They were really interested then. And it was only uh, about a year later that the cartel uh, got into methamphetamine. They started putting meth in with their cocaine shipments and it took off like a new brand of Viagra and it was cheaper to make. And I almost wonder if we didn't give them the idea. Yeah. Sad commentary that that is. 
Oh man. <laughs> but I was just well, following orders to train them, you know? Well, so, I mean, eventually what we're talking about, you, you, I mean, you're like all over the world. Let's start zeroing in now and start talking about, uh, and actually you have two books out. Um, I, I was, uh, um, I was negligent in, uh, looking at the second one, but you've got two books out. The one's called Operation Trip to Oz, which is the one we're going to talk about. The second one is called 21 Deadly Mistakes, which I'm glad you wrote because that's that's a that's the type of book every cop needs to read, everybody who carries a firearm in the profession of arms needs to read, you know, and take a look at this. So you've got a couple books out, but so we we start talking about this Operation Trip to Oz, but as you come full circle, do you go back out to the Midwest again? Where is your duty station at when you start working this LSD case? Uh, the well, what happened was how how the case started. I was uh, well, I used to run, be the the supervisor for the DEA Clandestine Laboratory Safety School, and we could do a whole other presentation on that about how cop you know cops are trained how to handle violent suspects, but they aren't trained to be firefighters or chemists or bomb disposal. And when you raid these cocaine or when you raid these meth labs, you know. You, you you can have threats in all those arenas. I mean, you're wrestling some hell's angel into a set of handcuffs and you knock a, a bottle of hydrochloric acid into a bottle of cyanide and you've just turned it into a hydrocyanide gas chamber. So we, we had this school at, at Quantico at Camp Upshur that, that I ran with another agent to train uh, DEA agents and police the specific threats related to clandestine drug labs. Well, uh, when I was running the school, there were only two of us there. And all of a sudden, meth labs exploded all across the country. We were running around like cats in a room full of rocking chairs trying to train police on, on all these new threats. Uh, well, anyway, I was there for a few years, and then I, I was lucky I got promoted to be a supervisor. And they brought me up to DEA headquarters where I was the coordinator for the DEA Operation Velocity, staff coordinator for Operation which was a nationwide program to uh, provide equipment and support to all these clandestine lab raid teams across the country. So we buy lab trucks and, and, and self-contained breathing apparatus and all these uh, ninja suits for them, which were fire resistant. So when they raid these, these labs, uh, they would have a little more safety. And it was while I was there, um, the, 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 my, my boss came in and said, guy, we just got a guy showed up at Maine Justice with his lawyer from Kansas. And he wants to turn in what he says is the biggest LSD trafficker in the world. And I, it, it, we want you to interview him because we, we know you know about clandestine drug labs. And I was getting ready to go interview him. And it turned out this was Gordon Todd Skinner, one of the main characters in this book I wrote. And uh, I was getting ready to interview him. But I thought, you know, I have my, my partner here is, uh, is Zach Zajac who uh, is, was a DEA chemist before he was a, before he was. Did you say Pat Sajak, like in Wheel of Fortune? What'd you say? <laughs> Zach. They called him Zach. Z-A-C-K. Zach Zajak. And uh, he uh, was a DEA chemist before he became a DEA agent. And he was also a colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. And I thought, well, you know, he'd really be a better guy to interview this Todd Skinner because he's a chemist. Because meth labs, I'm totally comfortable with. I mean, I could train Forrest Gump how to make methamphetamine. It's pretty simple. But LSD labs, they are extremely complicated. I mean, uh, DEA chemists tell me there's probably at that time there were probably only a dozen black market chemists in the entire world who knew how to produce LSD. So I thought, well, you know, Zach, would you interview this guy because you could probably do a better job than I would? And he did, and he came back, and he was 
uh, I mean, he, he was really impressed. He said, guy, you aren't going to believe this case. This guy says this, uh, William Picard, who Todd Skinner's affiliated with is producing millions of doses, millions of doses of, of, uh, of LSD at this decommissioned nuclear missile silo in Wamigo, Kansas, of all places, which, as you said, was really rare because, I mean, like you, when I was a kid, I used to drive through Wamigo and you'd see these, I said, what a coincidence this is, you know, and that it would be, you know, 10 miles from my hometown that has the biggest LSD lab in history. So anyway, Zach kicked this off. Originally, he started it out of DEA headquarters, and then it was transferred to uh, two great agents. Uh, uh, Roger Hanslick was the case agent in Kansas, and then they had another agent um, who handled the uh, California side of the investigation, Carl Nichols out of, out of California. And Carl, I think he used to be a chemist before he was an agent too, so that was a, was a good fit. And uh, they ended up making this. And, and I wrote a book about this. I, I was reading all the DEA sixes, what was going on. And I was fascinated because uh, uh, this uh, William Picard was trying to say that he was a CIA undercover agent. He was really doing this for the CIA. Well, I knew that was bullshit from my background. And uh, it, tur- it turned into, uh, you know, I know Steve, you know, Steve had a fantastic case. As, you know, we didn't have the dramatic shootouts and international stuff with Pablo Escobar, but we certainly had the most bizarre characters of any DEA case that well, I can. Let's, let's lay I out read, some of the groundwork the book. for this. You're exactly yeah. right. So let's start laying out the groundwork for this. So um, how did you end up getting involved? So what, what's your, now that you, I mean, you've got a group of folks obviously working. So what's your role in the investigation now? What are you doing? Well, they, then what happened was, uh, as I said, there were two other agents that were the case agents. And this really wasn't my case, but I transferred back to Kansas City and uh, became the director of the Midwest Haida Investigative Support Unit in Kansas City. And that was more of an intelligence group, you know, uh, deconflicting cases. And, and so we didn't have the highway patrol busting DEA in some undercover operation or, you know, you know. And uh, so I would just I, I was really in the background on this. You know, I wasn't out in the field on this, but I, I had a support role as providing intelligence to the unit. And the more I found out such fascinating stuff, I, I, I decided I needed to keep notes on this and, and later wrote a book about it. But uh, what it boiled down to was uh, it's the story of a brilliant Harvard chemist who tried to bring back the 1960s era of, of free love Timothy to the 21st Larry, you know, Tune yeah. in. Turn what was on. it? Tune in. Yeah, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Yeah, yeah. You know, and this guy, you have to understand, you know, the unlike the uh, unlike the traditional drug lords like Steve worked on in Columbia or, or the violent uh, Hell's Angels motorcycle gangs or, or you know, or the, or, or the uh, traditional mafia. Uh, William Leonard Picard was a, a real anomaly. I mean, uh, this guy was a Buddhist monk. He had a master's degree from Harvard he had a cover as a drug policy analyst for University of California, UCLA, and he would fly around the world doing drug policy conferences. He even did one at Queen Elizabeth Windsor Castle. And then he wait, – wait, 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 wait. He's flying around doing drug policy conferences while he's actively working with this other guy making LSD. Yeah. 
He's the biggest LSD trafficker in the history of the world, and he has this perfect cover as a drug policy analyst for UCLA. And uh, and then he would fly to Russia, and he would do studies with the working with the KGB or the FSB now, I guess, and uh, studying you know fentanyl. And then he flies, you know, he marries the daughter of some KGB agent, and then he flies to Afghanistan, and he's he's studying. Uh, you know, he tries to work out a deal. Well, in one of his busts, he he's busted twice for drug labs before this case. And in one of his busts, he did some prison time. And his cellmate was Colonel Akbar, who from Afghanistan. And uh, Colonel Akbar's uncle was like the Secretary of Defense or something in Afghanistan. And Picard flew over there to talk to the Afghans, and they tried to arrange a deal to trade. 600 kilos of heroin and six Stinger missiles uh, to turn them into the U.S. if they would get Colonel Akbar a reduction in his sentence, prison sentence. But he was doing this on his own. He was like a self-appointed international spy, and he really wasn't working with the U.S. government. And then he goes to customs and he tries to work out this deal. And they say, no, because what he was really going to do was just they were going to give some peasant his family, you know, hundred thousand dollars, and he was he would bring this stuff over, and he'd spend the rest of his life in jail, and he had nothing to do with it. You know, it was a scam to get a reduction in the sentence for for Colonel Akbar. But he hey, tried. Hold on to- a second. This guy's been busted twice already. Does nobody do a background at the University of California at Los Angeles before they put somebody into a drug policy program to see? Have you got any arrests that might involve drugs? Oh, it, 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 not only, I mean, this guy, I looked at his background. See, he has this, he, he tries to put on this persona that he's a spiritual leader. They, people who use the LSD, they call them entheogens. It's in other, entheogen meaning to be in the presence of God. To them, using LSD isn't drug abuse. It is a spiritual enlightenment experience to bring you to a higher level of enlightenment. You know, and he has this cult group of of entheogen users who th- who thinks he's like a guru, and he uh, this guy he, he but but he's a phony because he he's a career criminal. He's been arrested twelve times. We found out everything from forgery to to passport fraud to drug labs. You know, and he's a con man, and and you know he he even had an arrest for carrying a concealed weapon. You know. And his supporters try to say that, that, you know, this was draconian to, for the government to put him away because he's just a spiritual Buddhist monk who's trying to save the world with LSD. Well, how many Buddhist monks have been arrested for carrying a concealed weapon, you know, and, and have <laughs> – well, It's kind of hard point. to put a weapon in some of those robes that those monks use. You really got to – I don't want to know where they conceal it. To your point, Morgan, you know, UCLA considers that experience. Oh, <laughs> who better to talk about drug control policy than somebody who tried to set up a poor Afghan farmer with six, you know, six kilos of heroin or six stinger missiles and a hundred kilos of heroin and uh, get a get a obviously somebody doing time released? Yeah, well, perfect, perfect. Pro tip: if you're a felon out there listening to this podcast and you're wondering where your career path takes you, you UCLA. Sound like UCLA is the place <laughs> for you to go. <laughs> anyway, this guy he he was such an anomaly. For a, for a DEA drug lord, you know, I mean, most DEA cases, they have these, these uh, you know, flamboyant crack dealers or 
or drug lords like like Steve worked on. This guy was a marathon running vegetarian. He he he, he, he was in Gump. Oh, geez. You know he he was endowed with a phenomenal chemical knowledge faculty, and he was very intelligent and polite. He's tall and thin. You know, he, he some ways. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink alcohol or eat meat. He meditates and practices yoga. And he previously lived at the San Francisco Zen Center on Page Street. You know, he, he's really not your typical profile of a drug lord for DEA. <laughs> I eat healthy. I work out. I meditate. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he's still a douchebag. But he came from a very well-to-do family. His his father was a lawyer and his mother was a fungal disease expert at the Center for Disease Control. Uh, you know, and he, in, in high school, he was named as the most intellectual. He had he got a scholarship to Princeton, but dropped out after only one term. Uh, he preferred to hang out at the Greenwich, Greenwich Village jazz clubs. Uh, and he later, you know, obtained a degree in chemistry and and then he got a master's degree from Harvard but uh, he he had a very he had a very optimistic future you know this guy was brilliant but instead of using all this uh, you know for for good he 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 you know a criminal strain evidently ran in his blood which instead of being modified was increased and rendered infinitely more dangerous by his extraordinary mental powers you know, he he had international contacts, which ranged from aristocrats in England to organized crime figures in Russia and drug lords in Afghanistan. He was truly a man of mystery and intrigue. A regular Austin Powers. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, 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 you know, it's, it's funny you would say that because it really was an Austin Powers uh group of characters. Kind of comedic type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what his undercover name was? He used James Maxwell as his undercover name. We took James from James Bond and Maxwell and from Maxwell, Maxwell Smart. Maxwell Smart. You know. <laughs> Get smart. Oh, da da da. So this, I mean, so do you have a, or did you find out, when did this guy's criminal path start? Was it while he was in college, after he was in college? You know, when did he start down this road of all these arrests? Um. Oh, I his whole life i mean he he was stealing cars and and when he was you know a forgery uh, i tell you what happened was he he spent his i don't think he ever worked a day in his life except for this drug policy stuff you know he was a trust fund kid and uh, other than his work but but he was extremely intelligent he did a lot of research it was very valuable. And, you know, uh, I have to hand it to him in one thing. One thing he was really right about, and I credit him, is he pointed out that the future danger for this country was fentanyl. And he was absolutely right about that. And he even interviewed, I, I told you earlier about how the biggest fentanyl lab in, in, in law enforcement history was in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, and uh, he went and interviewed the guy who ran in prison. That, that ran that ran that fentanyl lab and they exchanged notes as chemists you know but he never produced fentanyl he he, he i have to give him credit he he thought fentanyl was was terrible but he thought lsd and hallucinogens were great so i guess in a context he wanted to turn the world on with lsd we'd been better off and be on hallucinogens than fentanyl but uh, i don't think either one of them is very good for you Hey, now right. was that was that fentanyl bust? I think that was is outside Wichita. Was that a little town called Goddard, Kansas? Exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, that was like nobody really understood back then the importance of that arrest, I don't think, because that was like it's not like we talk about now fentanyl is such a big issue right now. We're talking about it coming over the border. I don't think anybody understood back then. Yeah, God, again, I'm from I'm going to have to rethink. Uh, yeah, I'm from Kansas, but not the areas where they did uh, not from Wamego and not from Goddard. So um, just got to add that no, to my resume. Hey, you're from Kansas. You own the whole state. You got to go with what they got. <laughs> so, so as you start working there, I mean, you're obviously, you're kind of in the catbird seat. I mean, you can see a lot of this stuff coming across. What's, what's starting to happen in this case now? So from the time the guy walks in, by the way, let's kind of book in this. What was this guy's initial reasoning? The, the guy that walked into main justice, why did he decide to, Hey, um, I want to, I want to, I want to talk. Uh, well, that, that, that's the, uh, Picard, I call him the wizard because he even looked like a wizard. He had long white hair, and it was it, this case was actually named Operation White Rabbit, but I changed it to Operation Trip to Oz for the book because the Wizard Oz Museum was in Wamego, Kansas, and it was kind of like taking a trip, you know, LSD, and it was in this decommissioned nuclear missile silo. And anyway, there was this guy. His name was Gordon Todd Skinner. And he was also a trust fund kid. He his, his family were very wealthy, and they were next door here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His mother, Kathleen McGreeny, was a socialite in, in Tulsa, and they owned this big spring. They owned this Gardner Spring Company, which produced industrial springs, had uh, income of five to ten million a year in some years. And anyway, this Gordon Todd Skinner, he was also a chemist. Like, like William Picard, my personal opinion, I don't think he was as brilliant of a chemist as Picard, but they had a lot in common. They would go to these entheogen conferences to talk about hallucinogens. And he, he goes up and he buys this, talks his mom into buying this missile silo in Wamego as a, a place to produce these springs for the Gardner Spring Company, when in reality it was just a cover. Okay. They, they, <laughs> yeah, well, they actually, I think they did bring some equipment up there. But what he did is he turned this missile silo into uh, his entheogen sacramental uh, palace, okay, where he, he spent over $100,000, put in Italian marble floors. He, he, you know, and the missile base already had security, you know, high, high security, you know, 12 inch thick doors and everything. And he, he put a movie theater into it. He, he fixed it up with a hot tub and, and a, a, a theater with pornographic stuff. And he turned it into an underground palace for, for drug and sex parties, you know, and he would fly, he would drive women in out of Kansas city and they'd have these big parties in there and everything. And then I guess one of them, one of these women got busted for DUI and he was concerned that the uh, local police would catch on. So he, he, he was such a con man. He was so smart in a way. He hired the local police in Wamigo to do security, perimeter security on his missile silo, telling them that he was producing springs for the NASA space shuttle. And, you know, and anyway, to make a long story short, one of these guys in this party had an overdose and died. And instead of running him to the local hospital, they drove him all the way to Manhattan. And so he didn't make it. So he was under suspicion for drugs with that. And then also what he did that was really stupid was he was laundering all this money with Picard that they were making from selling the LSD in, in Holland. 
And he would go to the Native American casino outside of Topeka, and he, he would gamble tens of thousands of dollars. And he went to cash his chips in, and he, he showed his dead stepfather's IRS special agent badge, said he was, an, he was a federal agent. Now, why he did that, I don't know, because he maybe he was high on LSD, because you don't need to do that to cash your chips in. But when he, they asked for ID, he showed his father, his stepfather who died, was an IRS special agent, and he stole his credentials when he died, and he was impersonating his dead stepfather. And so naturally, the casino put two and two together and called and got him busted for impersonating a federal agent. And that was the beginning of why he decided to roll over to uh, to cooperate with DEA. But anyway, also he and and uh, and Picard. And I'm trying to think how to summarize this story because there's so many offshoots from this. But he he and Picard had had a conflict because he was ripping Picard off. They were they were laundering money in the casinos, and I think he was ripping Picard off, and Picard was getting onto him. But see, how it happened that he got in with Picard is th- this Gordon Todd Skinner, he'd always wanted to be a made man in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which is the hippie mafia, the entheogen LSD mafia. Okay, And he got to know Picard. He knew Picard was a big guy in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And it was like a little Italian guy that wanted to be a made man in the mafia. He told Picard that he he knew Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett could get him a $400,000 grant to study drugs if he would appoint Skinner as the director of security for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and that they should move the LSD lab to one of his missile silos in Kansas where they'd have better security and surveillance and so forth. So anyway, Picard made a huge mistake and fell for it. And he even took, they were both such con men. He even took Picard to a mansion in in California and had Picard sitting out the car and said, I'm going to go in and talk to to Warren Buffett and and get your your grant working for you, you know. And he he never was in with with Warren Buffett, you know. But but these two guys, they were, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Michael Caine. Oh, yeah, Steve Steve Martin and Michael Caine. They were like those two guys. And they were always competing with each other, except they were also big-time drug dealers. So they were chasing women all over the world, and they were con men pulling all kinds of cons. But they were also the biggest LSD traffickers in the world. So, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's so bizarre. Hey, uh, Guy, before you dive too far into it, um, had any of this – I mean – had the spike of LSD or had LSD registered on DEA's radar to the point of where you're trying to figure out where it was coming from before guy walks into headquarters? I mean, or is that kind of one of those things is kind of like, shit, we had no idea this was going on here. I don't think DEA had any idea it was going on there. It, we, we were just really lucky. I mean, the, this, if, if Picard had not made the huge mistake of bringing this crazy Gordon Todd Skinner into his organization, I don't know if we ever would have caught him because Picard was a brilliant guy. He had a perfect cover. And, uh, you know, he, we were lucky because uh, Skinner and, and, and Picard got in this conflict and uh, Skinner ratted him out to, you know, to avoid any charges for impersonating a federal agent and also this suspected, you know, death of, of the guy in his missile silo. Well, were Picard and uh, Guy, were they were they management and labor? Or who was doing all the production of LSD? Well, how this worked, 
there were actually two missile silos involved. The missile silo in Wamigo was actually a cover. It was a decoy. The LSD was actually being produced in another missile silo in Carniero, Kansas, a little tiny town out near Salina where you were. And uh, Picard would fly in to Kansas City and he'd drive out there and he spent hours producing this LSD at the Carniero missile site. And then he would, you know, so that if the, they, the theory was that the police ever, first of all, Kansas is a great place because there's not that many trees and surveillance you can pick up on easy. Also, you don't have a neighbor smelling chemical fumes, you know, out there in, in these farmhouses. And, uh, but anyway, he was actually producing the missile silo at another location at this Carniera missile site, which uh, was owned by another guy who, who died, who committed suicide. And there's some suspicion about on that, what happened there. And when he died, uh, they went into panic mode because Skinner knew that this kid's dad would be coming out to the missile silo, you know, in probate. And so it was an emergency. They had to move the, the, the LSD lab from the Carniero missile site. Well, fortunately for Skinner, uh, at this time, when the, this guy died, who owned the missile site in, in Carniero, uh, Picard was in England. And so Skinner just went out there on his own with some of his uh, assistants and moved Picard's lab to the Wamigo missile site and put it in storage. And, of course, Picard was furious about this. And uh, then he talked uh, – Skinner, as, as an undercover informant for DEA, then talked – uh, Picard into coming back to pick up the the LSD lab, which had huge quantities of agonamine tartrate, or, or actually it turned out it was ergocrystine, a precursor chemical. And uh, so when Picard came out to pick up his lab with Apperson, that's when uh, we took him down. And actually, it was your colleagues at the Kansas Highway Patrol. We had to make the bus so that we wouldn't show federal involvement. Um, but we made a mistake. We didn't know at the time that uh, uh, Picard was a marathon runner. So we had these two Kansas Highway Patrolmen set up to arrest Picard and Apperson. Uh, Apperson was driving this huge this uh, van, I mean, uh, truck. I think it was a rider truck. I forget. Anyway, type of truck. And uh, Picard was following him in a, in a silver Buick as a, as a follow vehicle. And they had walkie-talkie so they could communicate. And what they didn't know is while we were doing surveillance on them, we went into the uh, um, store behind them and got the same kind of walkie-talkie so we could hear what they were saying. And, uh, you know, they went into a store in Kansas and bought these walkie-talkies. And the agents, uh, you know, Roger Hanslick and them went in behind him and said, hey, what kind of walkie-talkies did he buy? And they bought the same ones so we could hear what they were doing when they were loading up the, the rider truck. And so anyway, the mistake we made, though, is – only one of the two Kansas Highway Patrolmen had a dog, okay? And unfortunately, the one with the dog is the one who pulled over Apperson in the truck, okay? The one who went to pull over Picard in the car, Picard drove off the road and jumped out and ran into the Kansas woods. And this other Kansas trooper, he, he was in good shape and he made a valiant effort to catch him, but he couldn't catch the marathon runner. So now we had a scene that was reminiscent of the U.S. Marshals movie, The Fugitive, 
for, you know, for, for, for two days, this Picard is in the Kansas woods and we don't know where he is. We have 50 officers looking for him and, and, and hounds and the helicopter with infrared. And he was, Picard was so smart. He would, he would hide in the, in the drainage tunnels under the bridge so that he couldn't, his, his infrared signature couldn't get picked up. But, uh, we had a good old boy, Kansas farmer actually caught him. The word was out, all the farmers out in that area, that we had a fugitive on the run. And uh, there, was, there was this good old boy, he, he was a World War II veteran. He thought the days of excitement in his life were over, and he comes out, and Picard's sitting in a truck on his farm. And uh, Picard comes out and says, hey, you know, my car broke down. Can, can, you know, can you help me out? He says, well, yeah, I got a tractor here. I'll put your, I said, oh, no, no, no. I need a ride into Manhattan. Can you give me a ride into Manhattan? And so this uh, farmer, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. All of a sudden my mind's gone blank. Anyway, a good old boy farmer. He, he says, yeah, I'll help you out. But let me go tell my wife and uh, then I'll give you a ride into Manhattan. Well, he goes in and his son had already alerted him. There was a fugitive and he called the, the sheriff's office and stay and, and, uh, they came rolling out in the sheriff's office and the Wamigo police. I think there was two different units. Uh, they, they finally caught him because he was anyway, he, he started to run again, but they were in squad cars now driving across a cornfield, you know, and he finally threw his hands up and said, I'm tired and cold. I give up. And so that's how the wizard was finally captured. Back to Apperson's Apperson. He, he was a little bit confrontational when he got out against the canine officer. Right. 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 And he was going to read in your book and, and, and Apperson was going to run. And the, 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 the Kansas highway patrolman said, you see this dog, you think you can outrun the dog is my understanding. And so he said, no. And he gave, he gave up, but originally he was confrontational. And I think he was thinking about running, but he looked at that dog and changed his mind. Dog's a dog will change your mind. That's right. Yeah, the old saying is, "You can run, but you're just going to go to jail, tired, pal. Just you know, turn yourself in." So probably with a bite mark. But let me tell you, but but there's some, but there's some, um, uh, you know, the the thinking behind this too is you're right. The longer they're out there without food, without shelter, you know, without water, you wear them down pretty quickly. Two days doesn't seem is not a long time, but it's a long time when you don't have any of the necessities you need to survive. Plus and a lot of cold. these people, yeah, and it's cold pretty soon. They're like, I just, they turn themselves in because they want to get warm or they're hungry and they need food. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. not quite as smart as he thought he was. You know, and, and back to what you said about, about uh, Morgan, you had a question a while ago about did the DEA think that, you know, this guy was on the radar, was the largest producer of LSD in the world. I remember back in my days, I never worked an LSD case. We did work some ecstasy cases and the drugs were being produced over in Denmark and other parts of Europe. And I think, I'm thinking the presumption was that the LSD was coming over from Europe to the United States when in reality, we're producing been, the, almost the entire world supply of LSD right here in the U and in, in Kansas. They had no clue, no clue, you know, how were they distributing it, though? What was their means of distribution? Was it all going, um, how much of it was, like, percentage-wise, how much of it was going to the U.S., how much of it was going overseas? Well, we don't know exactly, but a huge portion of it was going to the Netherlands. And there was a guy named Petaluma Al who would, uh, you know, you know, LSD, is all you need is a little tiny, you know, 100 micrograms to get high. You know, so you can have a huge quantity. He, he would hide it in a briefcase under, you know, a false briefcase, and he would bring it to the Netherlands and distribute and bring the money back in Dutch guilders for, for Picard and Skinner. And then Picard and Skinner, they would go, this is kind of entertaining too. 
there's so many of these stories I could go on. He, he, Picard and Skinner would fly to Las Vegas, okay, and they would pull up at one of these high roller casinos in a in a in a limo with like a dozen strippers in the car, and they would go in and they would give each of these strippers like uh, fifty thousand dollars in Dutch guilders, and they would say, "You go in and you just gamble for." 10 minutes. Well, first of all, they go to the casino, they take the Dutch guilders, they'd go in and cash it in for chips. And then they'd take the chips and they would just gamble. They say, well, I don't care if you lose 5,000, just bring me back most of the 50,000, you know, and come to room 111 in, in an hour and give me the cash. And so that's how they laundered a lot of this. And these casinos doing doing that routine, you know. And they've converted it from guilders to, to U.S. dollars. Yeah, because they, they, that's how they converted their guilders to U.S. dollars. And then also another bizarre aspect of this case is while this Todd Skinner has this missile silo in Wamigo, he goes to a local uh, strip club. And there's a gal there. Her name's Crystal Cole. In the book, I called her Dorothy Stripper because when I was writing this book, my publisher didn't want me to use her real name because she wouldn't sign a release in my interview with her. And, and, uh, but anyway, her name was Crystal Cole and she would do this strip routine, bondage stripper routine, where she'd dress up like Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz with pigtails and, and whip herself on stage. And I guess Gordon Todd Skinner comes in and he sees this crazy Wait a minute. Routine. I know. I saw her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you probably did. <laughs> oh, well, the man. funny thing is my cousin, the dentist in Topeka, told me he actually saw one of her routines out there. <laughs> but <laughs> I had some of my old buddies in Kansas telling me about it. But uh, anyway, he fell in love with her, and he would go in there and spend hours talking to her, and not getting lap dances, but just he'd pay her you know, big money, just sit in the room and talk to him. And she, and she thought he was uh, brilliant, you know? And so then he buys her a Porsche because he says, oh, you shouldn't have a car like this. Quit, quit your job as a stripper here and come out to the missile silo with me. And he bought her a Porsche and she was kind of like the director of entertainment out there at the missile silo. And she'd wear these bikinis. And I a gas bet she was. <laughs> <laughs> and she, you, you see pictures of her. You know, in the book, uh, she's wearing a gas mask and a bikini. And, and so you had all these bizarre characters like her. And she, matter of fact, after this case got over, she started a, a website. And because uh, she's wrong, she started a website where she would show people how to extract dimethyltryptamine off of the Sonoran Desert Toad and get high with that. And she had her toad she'd do shows with. And uh, she was talking about <laughs> <laughs> she she has a website. She 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 she's kind of like you, Steve. She has her her, her podcast and or not podcast. For years, she had this entheogens website, you know, for that community, talking about the wonders and how how great hallucinogens are. Wow. Now, is she the one that uh, another young man started uh, having an affair with her that led to a kidnapping and a torture? Oh yeah, this is uh, the trying to think how to explain this anyway she and todd skinner after todd skinner rolled over and became a dea informant we had to hide him out you know and they went up to oregon or i think washington or Oregon, i forgot anyway they went to the west coast and poor poor carl nichols he must have been pulling his hair out trying to handle this troublesome informant because skinner started impersonating a medical doctor 
and prescribing drugs for women. He told everybody in this place that he was at that he was a doctor from England who was working on HIV, and he was actually prescribing drugs. So, the IRS agent thing wasn't working for him, so he kind of yeah, decided to yeah. become a medical doctor. Yeah. You know, and so then they had to move him again, you know, down to New Mexico or somewhere. I forgot where it was. But anyway, um, this gal, this Crystal Cole, she goes and, and uh, she's with him and they're, they're using, you know, he gets back into the drug world again, you know, which you're not supposed to do. We finally got Picard convicted. And then after Picard was convicted, instead of straightening his life out and saying, thank God I didn't go to prison, he goes down to Oklahoma City, back to Oklahoma where his mom is. And oh, whoa, whoa, he, whoa, 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 stop. Oh, time out. He, he does all of this stuff and he doesn't get jail time for all of this LSD? No, he, we, he, because he cooperated. He get, he got an immunity agreement. It's the only way we could catch Picard, you know? So, well, no, it, it wasn't Picard who walked away. You said after Picard got convicted, it was Guy that walked away with no jail time. Uh, Todd Skinner. I mean, yeah. Todd. Yeah, Todd. Yeah, because Todd Skinner testified in court against Picard and helped to get Picard convicted. And, uh, and what, did, what, did Picard, what did Picard get for uh, jail term? Picard received two life sentences in federal court, and it was a, it was the longest trial in Kansas history because during the trial, Picard kept trying to say he was really like a secret agent working undercover for the CIA and had to bring Judge Bonner in and CIA people to testify that he really wasn't a CIA agent, that this was all BS. And anyway, the, the trial itself was a whole other story. It was really bizarre. And... It was so, it was like an eleven week trial, right? Oh yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it was long. It was uh, it, the judge said it was the longest trial in Kansas history that he knew of. He said, you know, but for this Picard doing, uh, you know, claiming all these things, this had been a three day trial. You know, it was just a LSD lab and a rider truck. What's a, but Picard kept trying to argue that he was really working for the government to try and make it a better world, and. Uh, but anyway, getting back to this Crystal Cole. So now Picard is convicted, and Todd Skinner and Crystal Cole, they, they go back to Oklahoma, and they start a cult group in Oklahoma where this Todd Skinner is like a Catholic priest. He's up in front in a chalice, and he gives these communion wafers to all these kids for drug and sex parties, and the communion wafers are filled with LSD. Mm. And Oh, my and God. He, you know, and then he finds out that this young, handsome guy, this uh, really nice guy, uh, Brandon Green, he, he looks like a beach boy. You know, he blonde hair and blue eyes, real handsome kid. You know, and he, I think he was only 18 or at the time. And he finds out that uh, this Brandon Green is fooling around with his wife. And uh, he takes and gives Brandon Green a knockout drug instead of LSD. So Brandon Green wakes up in this uh, hotel room in Tulsa, and he's tied up naked and, and gagged, and uh, uh, th this crazy Skinner tortures him for a week. I mean, he's injecting LSD into his penis. He's injecting parasites into him. Uh, he shaved all the hair on his body. For, for an entire week, he, he gives him terrible torture. You know, and uh, 
the kid's suffering tremendously. I mean, he pulled on his penis so hard that cowardly's cracked, you know. Uh, it, it was just horrendous what he did. Well, anyway, they tortured this this kid for, you know, a week. And then they decide, well, he's almost dead. Let's just drop him off in the desert in Texas. And uh, they drive him down to Crystal Cole and Skinner and this other guy named Hawk was helping him out. They drive him down there. And they drop him off near Texas City, Texas, uh, you know, in the desert. And the, Brandon Green, he he manages to crawl like half a mile to, to the edge of this road. They left him for dead. And a, a policeman finds him and brings him into the hospital emergency room and saves his life. They said another 15 minutes, they thought he'd be dead. And, and they interviewed him. And, and then while they were doing – anyway, while he was being tortured – this Crystal Cole, she's so crazy. She has this mystic robe she's wearing. She's chanting over his dying body, you know, praying like he's a sacrifice to Satan or something. It's just unbelievable. Sick people. And doesn't Brandon Green, I, I, of course, I read this in the book, so this was back when you wrote the book. It sounded like he had lifelong issues with his health because of the torture they endu- they uh, administered to him. I mean, it was horrific, some of the things I read about in there. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, I talk to Brandon regularly and, uh, he's a friend of mine now and, and, uh, he's doing real well now and he has, uh, some real cute little kids and, and he, I don't know where he's living now. Well, he's in Oklahoma, but, uh, he used to, he was originally from, from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And, uh, they've, they've interviewed, there's a movie producers interviewed him and myself about making a film about this. Uh, and about Todd Skinner, and they're talking about titling the film Psychonaut. Um, whether this comes to fruition or not, I don't know. We'll see. But uh, has anybody optioned? Has anybody optioned your book yet, or put a script together to option? No, no, not yet. But they interviewed me for five hours in L.A. So I, I don't know. We'll see. The movie. Yeah, they stuck to your brain dry, and they're going to take it and make a series on Netflix and make a ton of money and pay you a five hundred dollar consulting fee. That's Probably. the way it works in Hollywood, pal. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, I just hope if they do that, I can get some young, good-looking guy to play me, like Steve. God's lucky in his series. Oh yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, maybe you get a Pedro Pascal like Javier got. You know, he's he's the heartthrob. So, so give us the aftermath. I mean, because one of the biggest things out of this, though, too, is when did it finally? When did DEA and and you guys on the case and watching the intelligence? When did you finally realize the scope of this investigation? Like, like you were saying, Steve, would you, it was an eighty percent reduction in the supply of LSD. How did you come about determining that? And um, you know, when did when it become when did it become apparent to you that it was this big of an operation? Well, do you know? Um, of course. Informants always tend to embellish, so you, you never know. But the amazing thing was, for you know, there's some people, a lot of these entheogen people, they they try and say that that DEA was was embellishing and that it really wasn't that much LSD and everything. Well, you know, I'm not a, D, a chemist, but the DEA chemist told me that he had enough precursor chemicals to make 2.8 billion, 2.8 billion doses of LSD. That's enough LSD to get every man, woman, and child in the Western Hemisphere high, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the, the entheogen people, they, they, they try and argue that, oh, that, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're embellishing on this. But, but I don't know because I'm not a chemist, but I can tell you this. LSD seizures dropped 
by over, I think over 90% for 10 years after this bust, you know, and, and to me, that speaks volumes. I, I don't think it's just a coincidence, you know, that that was the case. I'm looking at two charts you had in the book. The first is LSD emergency room mentions. So uh, uh, Picard and Apperson arrest, were arrested November of 2000. And it looks like the emergency room mentions at that time were 2,800, 2,821. Um, per, I guess that's per year. That'd be right. And then, yeah, I think it dropped from the, I think the year before Picard was busted, it was 5,000 emergency room mentions. And after he was, the year after he was busted, it was 800 and some. So that's like a five, five-fold decrease in, in emergency room mentions for LSD. And you look at the, the number of LSD, LSD arrests, in the, and I'm assuming this in the United States, it's got to be because it's a DEA source, dropped from 100 uh, during his arrest, during his time of arrest, where in 2002 it dropped all the way down to 22. I mean, holy cow. This guy was responsible for the vast majority, just like Pablo had 80% of the cocaine market. This guy had 90% of the LSD market, it sounds like. And, you know, the difference, the reason I think this case is so significant is because, you know, if you arrest Pablo Escobar or, you know, a big drug lord in cocaine or heroin, they just get replaced. I mean, it hurts them, but they just replace it with a new guy. Whereas with LSD, there's not that many people who know how to make LSD. You know, it's very complicated. So you take out a guy like Picard and it really makes a difference because uh, it's, a, it's a very specialized skill and not many, very extremely few. You know, some chemists told me that they thought there were only a dozen guys in the world that would have the knowledge to, to make it on the quantities and quality that Picard did. Tell us about it. What is it about lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, for you, those uh, inside baseball term there? What makes LSD so difficult to produce compared to other drugs? Uh, well, you know, I'm not a chemist, so I can't tell you exactly, but, but uh, it, it, the formula and the precursor chemicals needed to produce it require a talented chemist. You know, unlike methamphetamine, you could train a biker gang member how to make it, you know, and that's the difference. You know, when it comes to drugs, you know, as you guys are well aware, but the listeners may not be, uh, you basically have uppers, downers, and all-arounders. You know, you have the uppers like cocaine and methamphetamine, you know, that stimulate. You have the depressants, the opiates, uh, heroin and fentanyl that depress, you know. Uh, people are more likely to get violent with stimulants, uh, the depressants, though, are more likely to kill you, the fentanyl. But there's this third category of hallucinogens that um, people don't get as I, – I do credit Picard in his statement. People don't get vi as violent with hallucinogens like they do with stimulants and, and depressants. But hallucinogens make you see things that don't exist. And, you know, you can be driving a car and see a dinosaur run across the road. You know, and hey, there Jack are Daniels will do that, too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> or see a naked man crawl into your patrol car and attack you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. You know, but there are some incidents of violence, although they're rare. You know, they had a uh, in Virginia, they had a, a high school kid took just five or six LSD pills, and then he came out and shot a female police officer with a rifle. 
you know, you know, there are some incidents of violence, you know, and people, you know, the, in the sixties, you had the people jumping off of buildings thinking they could fly, taking LSD. So, uh, although you may not have the same level of violence that you see with cocaine and methamphetamine, it still is a real danger to society. Although, you, although the entheogen supporters think that, you know, it makes you reach a spiritual level that for society would be much better off. But I don't think society would be better off for the whole country to be high as a kite, seeing things that didn't exist. Let me talk to you then about the book, because you wrote the book. When did you get the idea to write the book? And what possessed you to write the book? I mean, obviously, these are this is like Breaking Bad and uh, James mm-hmm. Bond, some just stuff all rolled up into one. What, what, what point did you decide, hey, uh, I'm going to use my journalism degree and I'm actually going to do something with it. I'm going to write a book. Well, hopefully, I, I think I'm a much better cop than I am a, a writer. But I, I, I decided I had to, I had to put this. You know, I had to uh, save it. Also, as a tribute to Carl Nichols and uh, Roger Hanslick, who, who did a lot of really good work to make this big case, uh, I, I thought that this needed to be documented because it was so unusual, and uh, people needed to be made aware of 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 what happened, you know, cause it was really significant, all these events. I mean, we didn't have a lot of shootings or anything like you do in a lot of DEA cases, but you know, we had people dying from overdoses and this kid tortured in Oklahoma and a lot of other really unusual events. So I, I'm, I'm sitting on the ranch and I'm sitting at my ranch in Arizona oh, a few couple years after I retired. And I thought, you know, Hey, I got some free time. I might as well document all this. You know, and, and I mean, you're being very humble about this whole thing. The, this is a significant case, and the fact that it <laughs> such a major reduction. I read uh, in your book you quote, uh, uh, oh Billy, the sack up there um, uh, in Kansas shit. City. Yeah, Billy. Billy uh, no, he went to St. Louis to be the sack down there, and I think he retired from there. Oh, anyway, I, I, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I yeah. just can't think of his name. He's a friend. All of a sudden, my name's name. gone blank with it, too. He's a good guy. <laughs> Absolutely. He's like kind of a legend within DEA. But, I mean, he came out, and he was a, he was attributing a reduction of as much as 95% in the availability of LSD worldwide. So th- this is that's why we wanted to have you on here talk about this case, because most people have never heard of it. But the significance of the investigation, I mean, we just explained the whole thing to you. This is something that had a lasting effect, a good positive lasting effect. See, LSD is a, LSD is the strongest of all the hallucinogens. You know, you have uh, you have uh, mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms that give you a buzz. You you, you have peyote, uh, you have DMT that you get off the snoring desert toad. You have all these different types of hallucinogens, but LSD is by far and away the strongest uh, of all the hallucinogens, you know, peyote buttons that you can get a buzz from, but uh, LSD is the strongest. And the thing about LSD is you only need a hundred micrograms. That's what one ten thousandth of a gram, you know, to get a buzz off of it. And so you can make huge quantities, which is what Picard was doing at a relatively low cost and, and, and make a fortune. Now Picard was trying to say that he was doing this to enlighten the world but, you know, this guy, he was making millions off of this and he was living the high life, you know, having, you know, thousand dollar bottles of wine at the Las Vegas casinos and and chasing women. So he's not the spiritual Buddhist monk who was trying to save the world. Billy Renton. 
Oh, yeah, just Bill his name That's anymore. right. Billy yeah. Such a good friend of mine. What was his name again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Billy. If you hear this, I apologize, buddy. Oh, hey, but um, so just a couple quick questions before we close out on this too. But was there anything that triggered? I mean, the chemicals they had to be buying. I mean, you talked about the precursor chemicals, like there was enough there to make all these billions of doses. But did that trigger anything? Um, any notifications? Because we know that with certain chemicals to make meth or, you know, after uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, buying ammonia nitrate, fuel oil, you know, things like that, things like that started triggering notifications. Was there anything that triggered a, a notification to DEA or somebody else that all of these chemicals were being bought? Well, see, this is how Picard was so brilliant. He went over to Europe and he found three formulas for LSD. And I think one was in Hungarian and there were two other languages and he had them translated and he, he found out, see, DEA, DEA keeps a spotlight for agonamine tartrate, ET, but he found a way you could use ergochristine to replace ET and produce LSD. And that was the key because ergochristine wasn't watched as tightly as ergotamine tartrate. And he, he was able to purchase 10 uh, containers of this ergo Christian, well, actually more than that. And uh, that was another thing. Todd Skinner had uh, had taken possession of all that ergo Christine, which gave him the power to control things. And he, he, matter of fact, it was, it was like pulling teeth to get all those vials of ergo Christine away from Todd Skinner. He kept hiding them different places and wasn't cooperating. And uh, we, we eventually, we think, hopefully, we got them all back. But uh, no honor among thieves. There, it's all about the oh, money. Oh, exactly, exactly. And that stuff, that stuff's pretty expensive, isn't it? Oh yeah, they say a hundred thousand dollars for one of those containers. Per wow. and he had ten of them, you know. But he was getting Carl Nichols would would, would and Roger Hanzik could give you a much better uh, on the details on this, but. He was getting those from organized crime figures, is my understanding, I think, in Chicago. And that was one of his concerns when he met with, with Todd Skinner. He said, you know, this puts us in a very dangerous position. You know, I need to get that uh, ergo Christine. But he had contacts to get the ergo Christine to him. And I think it was organized crime. And to think all of this, my little area of Chapman, Kansas. Well, I'm glad you ended this scourge because, but you know, as a kid, uh, you know, I remember we'd ride bikes during the summer. You would go ride by some of these missile silos that were out there. You'd take a day trip, you go find and never thinking, but you know, they've turned those into a cottage industry. They've turned those into little condos. They've turned them into like almost a, a an Airbnb type of thing. You can go stay in a missile silo for the weekend, not knowing that, uh, Hey, 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 while we're here, who would have thought, hey, let's make LSD. But again, like you say, <laughs> just but here's this guy brilliant as, as everything. But guess, guess what? Dumb as fuck as well, too, because in the end, guess what? All of the bright guys, all of the criminal masterminds, you may not catch every one of them. But you know what? You catch a whole lot more of them than they think they're the smartest people in the room until they're caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Picard got two life sentences. What about Apperson? Do you recall what his... Uh, Apperson, I think he got like 16 years. I think he's, I think, uh, you know, I, I haven't checked on Apperson, but he, he, he received less, less time than Picard, but Picard was released because Picard was released, uh, about a year ago after doing oh, a minute. 
<laughs> How do you get two life sentences and get released? I, I mean, somebody re- did we COVID. redefine the definition of the term COVID? Oh, fuck COVID. me, COVID. Yeah, yeah. See, you see, uh, Picard's an old guy now. He's seventy six, and uh, he he used the COVID thing to get out of prison. They released him because because of COVID. Unbelievable. Yeah, and you talk about a danger to the community. That's why you don't let people out of prison because they're a danger to the community. This guy has repeatedly been arrested. Well, he's, I think he said a dozen arrests, including carrying a uh, firearm. And he's the largest producer of LSD in the world. And we determined that he's not a danger to our freaking society. Well, you know, Unbelievable. normally when a guy gets old, you know, they, they kind of lose their testosterone somewhat and, and they're, they're less violent. You know, if you had a guy who was a bank robber, I could see it. But the trouble with Picard is it's his brain. It's his knowledge. It's his chemist. Right. That's right. Yeah. You he's know what I mean? He, he, it's a he's formula. Not, he's not like a guy who, who in, in a heat of emotion, you know, beat a guy to death or something because he's fooling around with his wife. And now he's an old guy. He's not going to be a repeat offender. This guy, his danger is his knowledge. And uh, I just pray that we don't see another round of LSD hitting the streets. And you know what he's doing now? He He's a celebrity like you are, Steve. He he does presentations all over. He goes to these entheogen groups and, and they, 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 they hold him up like the big guru. They honor him, you know, the, the, and, and they talk about how draconian the drug laws were to put this non, put this nonviolent offender, two life sentences. And, uh, you know, a nonviolent offender, but then they don't, they, they don't realize in, in, the, in the federal trial, we had two people testify that he was looking to develop a toxic poison like like uh, Breaking Bad uh, or the ricin to kill a couple to, to take out an informant in his organization. So this guy was yeah. plotting murder, but they talk about him as being nonviolent and, and no danger to society. That just shows you how idiotic we can be. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. It's, you know, we ought to take a look at the uh, CDC site to uh, see what if LSD is on the rise again that might coincide with the time of his release. Well, I tell you what, that would be interesting to find out is who's keeping tabs on this guy because you you made a great point, guy. The thing is, it's not it's it's not about the physical ability. Like you see this too. We've seen this in serial killer cases, other stuff over a period of time. It wanes, you know, their ability to carry out the crimes. But this guy, he did everything with his brain, and I doubt that in prison he just sat there and uh, intellectually masturbated. He probably was boning up on stuff, reading stuff, you know, keeping himself in tune. I have no doubt. I'll tell you what, if you're out there listening, DEA, because I know somebody is, uh, maybe we ought to fi- find Captain Picard, you know, Mr. Picard, and uh, just pay him a do a knock and talk, see what he's up to. I'll go. You want to go, Steve? Let's go do it. Well, he's written a book called The Rose of Paracelsus. He, he, he's, he, he, he is a brilliant guy. And, and I, I tried to read his book and, and uh, I don't think I have the cognitive capabilities he does because I lost interest pretty quick. But it gets into all this spiritual stuff and talking about the six chemists in the world who were visionaries that, to produce LSD and save the world with entheogens. It's, it sounds kind of like the the book that uh, George Young wrote about the tuna. Oh my um, God, the psychedelic yeah, tuna! And the, you know the, yeah. the the name. Uh, when we interviewed him, it's like I st- I read some of that. It's not so much that George's writing was above me. I just had no fucking idea what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, <I> was like, <laughs> where are we going with this? Might have had a little buzz on when he was writing. 
<laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, consider how much product went up his nose, that and everything else. But mm. oh, me, am I good? So, hey, now the other thing I wanted to ask you about too is you wrote a second book. And, uh, but actually, you didn't write the second book. That book was first, and your Operation Trip to Oz was second. Is that correct? No, no, I wrote Trip to Oz first. And oh, you did? I wrote, okay. I wrote Trip to Oz first, and then my publisher said, you know, this is when, uh, you know, they, they were having the school shootings and everything. And and uh, my publisher said, you know, you used to be a firearms instructor for DEA. Have you considered writing a book about about uh, firearms? And I, I thought about it. I said, you know, that would be a valuable book. I, so I studied. I did a lot of research and I studied the 21 mistakes most frequently made by police officers and armed citizens also result in their demise. And I think our armed citizens kill more bad guys every year than the police do. You know, and uh, I, I studied the, the I studied these 21 incidents and I put them into a book. And actually, what motivated me to make the book was I have a cousin who's a dentist in Topeka, Kansas, and he has a little cottage behind his house. And this cousin of mine, he's a former captain in the army. He's a really great shot. He's I mean, he's been a big game hunter in Africa and uh, you'd never think he would have a problem. But anyway, one day he hears screaming in the cottage behind his house, and his wife is back there screaming, and uh, he grabs a little 380 semi-auto pistol, and he runs back there, and there's a burglar who's broken into this cottage behind his house, and he pulls out this little 380 and says, freeze, don't move. You know, well, the guy's walking toward him, and the guy tries to jump him and take his gun away, and, uh, you know, he's an older guy. He's in his 70s, and... And uh, he he made the mistake. People don't really under stress. Even though he he's a fantastic shot, he forgot to take safety off on his pistol under stress. And he's pulling the trigger and it doesn't shoot. And now he's wrestling with this guy to get his gun. And fortunately, his brother, my other cousin, is big burly truck driver, runs in there and jumps on the guy and puts him in a headlock. And then my cousin Larry, the dentist, grabs a wine bottle and knocks the guy out with a wine bottle. And I said, I told him, I said, Larry, he wasn't you know, full, was it? He didn't waste a bottle of wine on this piece of shit, did he? Oh yeah. <laughs> but oh, I told Larry, geez, what you got I told available? Larry, I said, you know, your firearm skills weren't that great, but you were an ace wine bottle swinger. So fortunately, it ended up okay. But it made me think, you know, if even somebody like Larry, you know, there's little things like people don't forget under stress, you, you know, or, or like something I saw commonly in Dallas. You know, people don't think your tactics are just as important. You know, people think all you need is a, you know, high caliber pistol and you're a good shot and you're in shape. No, you need tactics. And like, like women come home and they find their house is broken into. And the first thing they do, which is the worst thing you do, they run inside to see what was stolen. Well, then there's a rapist in there and they end up getting raped or something. Or, or like my cousin, one of the things is you always want to take cover instead of running into the building, uh, Stay outside the building, wait for the police to arrive and take cover behind a tree and cover the door. You know, little things like that can make all the difference in the world. And uh, so so that's what I wrote the book. And also, like, never bring an untested weapon into battle. Don't don't ever bring a pistol that you've never shot. You know, there, there's little things like this, tactical things, uh, cover and concealment that are much more important or just as important as your as your accuracy with a firearm. 
You bring Absolutely. up a really good point. One, and I made a decision. I'm actually looking at another pistol, an FN6. Uh, you can get the law enforcement version once a year if you're retired from FN. They call it the individual purchase program, I think, or something. But um, that's one of the reasons, though, I transitioned to a Glock as my primary, uh, you know, everyday carry for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't have to think about the safety. It's the same trigger pull each time. You just reduce the number of things you have to think about. Because for me, I got to thinking is that look. Um, when you when you go from uh, double action and then it's single action, then you have to think of three things. I mean, if you if you have if you're flipping it off the, the safety, like when I carry when I used to you off regularly. Like yeah, you right flip now. me off regularly. Uh, but you know, I would I, I'm, you know for me, I carried like a Beretta. I would uh, or a six hour. Um, I left the safety off because the first pull was double action. So I I'd never left the weapon. I don't have any kids at the house, but but you that was one of the points I got to thinking about is like, hey, you want to reduce the number of things you have to think about should you have to draw and fire and and re reducing safeties, making everything the same pull so that the trigger pull is the same, you know, each time. And that's why when I looked at the getting another weapon or what something I would want to change maybe for an everyday carry, for one thing, ammo's getting damn expensive, 40 calibers, but uh versus nine. But uh, you, I mean, those are great points. You, you don't, you, you got to go to the range. You just don't, it's not like a car. You can drive a car and cars are pretty much cars, not weapons. Um, you know, you got to go put, I'd, I'd say at least a thousand rounds through a weapon before you, before I think you get to the point of where you go. Yeah, this, I'm very comfortable carrying this. I know how it's going to operate. I'm, I'm a good shot. So just my two cents. Well, I'll give you an example and, and you can speak to this better than I can guy. Cause you're, uh, an instructor at the academy, but um, I was a certified firearms instructor with DEA also. When when DEA agents go through the academy, they're estimated that they fire a minimum of 10,000 rounds before they graduate just to be a proficient enough to carry a weapon in public. That's how serious all this is. Yes, indeed. Well, you got to be because there's no taking a bullet back. Once it leaves the barrel, man, there is no uh, oopsies and calling it back. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they... I carried a Glock and a, sometimes I carry, I had a Sig Sauer as a great weapon also. I probably fired 40,000 rounds through it and never malfunctioned once. And yeah, that, I got the 239, uh, the compact 40 caliber. Uh. Yeah, they, uh, Sig or Glock, either one of those you can't go wrong with. I can't testify about the other weapons. I haven't tested them that much, but, uh, but I've been really happy with it. 100%. With, you know, DEA, I think, was the first federal law enforcement agency to issue semi-autos. And, you know, the FBI for years had always had the philosophy, six rounds for sure is better than 15, maybe. And they had all their agents carry revolvers. And it was kind of interesting. We started out with, with, the, with the SIGs and the Glocks out there at the range. And the FBI instructors were coming over looking, and they were actually counting the number of malfunctions, you know. And uh, when they saw that, you know, some, a lot of the older semi-autos would jam a lot. But this new, this new, uh, the, the SIGs, of course, now I'm talking about, you know, this is a 19, what, uh, 1990s, you know, or, or, well, 1980s, I'm trying to remember, you, you know, and, and when they saw that this, this new generation of semi-autos, pretty rare that they'd malfunction, uh, FBI switched over to semi-autos also. Yeah. You know, I, th I come to think of, because I went through in 87, the Academy, and we, we got the, the Smith & Wesson Model 10 revolvers. But by the end, and I was stationed in Miami, was my first post, and it wasn't long before I had one of the Smith six fifty nines, nine millimeter. Yeah, it took a it took one of the troopers getting shot um, before they realized that we used to carry Smith and Wesson six eighty six on the patrol. He survived the shooting. In fact, when we had uh, Mark Convoy on, Steve, that was the mm -hmm. shooting we're talking. Jeff Hirsch, 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it took them that took them to transition then to semi-automatics because this whole thing of when I first started, it was ammo dumps. Then they finally went to speed loaders. But still, you get a good, reliable weapon having at least 12 to 15, you know, uh, they're available for you, plus one in the chamber. Um, anyway, we, we, we digress into a uh, firearms course, uh, yeah. <laughs> which we could talk about. But uh, hey, well, look, guy, so let's close this out by asking, what are you doing now? Are you working on another book? Is there Have you heard back from Hollywood in, in uh, any movement on your uh, the other book? What's going on with you? Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of spoiling grandchildren right now. <laughs> I it's a good spend, job. I spend, spend most of my time. Uh, I'm kind of I, I'm actually actually retired now. Finally, you know, instead of instead of working at the ranch and and writing books, I, I finally I'm moving you know to Arkansas here and and going to settle down. And I, I haven't decided what I'm going to do with the next chapter in my life. Didn't you run a security company for a while? Yeah, I, I, the Gray Falcon International Security, but. Uh, uh, the, the trouble is that you, you have, if, I mean, I had retired DEA and a secret service and military guys that were wanting to go do training. Like I used to do international training, but, uh, if, if you don't have the right contact and, you know, like we, we were going to get this one contract in Afghanistan to, to train the police there. And then I found out, well, you, your guys don't have, um, domestic violence training. So, you know, I'm thinking domestic violence training. So they hired a bunch of California police officers who had domestic violence training to do it. And so, so I, I said, well, I'm, I'm getting out of this, you know. But it, in what Afghanistan, it, it, so apparently they don't understand the way things work over in Afghanistan yeah, between a man yeah. and a woman. Huh? You know, instead of hiring a bunch of former DEA and Secret Service and, and military guys who've been overseas, I think they put this contract out to a bunch of California poli- police officers because the guy who was writing the contract probably put some stipulation about the, you know, domestic violence thing. Not not that California police officers aren't a great group of guys, but but it, to me it was kind of ridiculous. And I said, well, that's it. I'm I'm ending this uh, business venture. Unbelievable. Uh, well, you know, that's the that's a typical example of the United States trying to impose its values and standards on the rest of the world. As much as I agree with the, the domestic violence training, I think that's a good thing. But, you know, we expect the world to come up to our standards. Well, we don't I can, want to accept the I way they I can guarantee do. you in many of those countries like Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Pakistan, places like that, domestic violence is not high on their list of things to solve. Yeah. Um, and that's – it's a sad fact, but that's that's the culture. Well, I, think, I think we could look at what the Taliban's doing right now in Afghanistan. Since oh, yeah, yeah. Let's see – can girls Perfect go to example. school? Can they hold jobs? No. Oh, okay. Gee, that's great, great uh, possibilities for women over there. Anyway, that was a digression. You are allowed to drink on that one. So that is the fifth <laughs> one, I believe. Uh, hey, well, guy, look, I got to tell you, man, this this was, uh, I love it because I didn't realize you were from Junction City. So, I mean, we could talk about all of this stuff. Hey, I got to ask you one question. Did you ever go to Slime and go eat at the Cozy Burger? No, I never, I never got the Cozy Burger. I, there, there's a chicken place in Abilene, Lena's Chicken House. I used to eat at a lot. Yes, and I know where that was that? at. And uh, yeah, and do you remember the Brookville Hotel? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Side of a famous murder too. They actually moved the Brookville Hotel to Abilene. They actually picked the whole thing up and moved it over to Abilene. No, Lena's Chicken House. Uh, they got the Eisenhower Center down there. Guys, uh, Abilene, we're we're part of the Chamber of Commerce, the Tourism Committee for a- Abilene, Kansas, and North Central Kansas. Y'all come visit. And for for our listeners, remember when we were talking about an LSD case, and now we're talking about restaurants in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, I had to be a smart ass. That's smart ass. Well, hey, guy, I got to tell you, this was great, man. This was fun. Um, this People can't see this. This is me saluting you. Say, first of all, thank you for your service to the country from everything from the uh, from the FBI to Dallas to the CIA to DEA, uh, putting those books out there. And I seriously, you got to get the books. So the first one is Operation Trip to Oz. Second one is 21 Deadly Mistakes. We will put those up on our website so people can go to our book list. They'll see that. Great stuff. Uh, and like I said, this is me saluting you. Thank you for your service there, uh, officer, secret agent, soldier. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> well, tell uh, me, just, just go to Amazon, Amazon to get the books if they want. Oh, well, we'll link, we'll link directly to Amazon. So, the yeah, the links on our site will take them directly to Amazon and they can buy it from there. And that way you can retire more comfortably. <laughs> yeah, and it, uh, you know, guy, thank you so much for being on the show. You didn't even hesitate when I called you and asked you about it, and it was it was kind of funny that Morgan brought it up, and I'm like, wait, 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 I know, I think I know this guy, and sure enough, it was you, uh, literally knew the guy. But uh, we wish you all the best in retirement, brother. It's you know, take care of those grandbabies. Uh, I love spoiling the grandkids because I can get them high on sugar and send them home. That's it. <laughs> not my monkey, not my circus. Here you go, guys. There you go. Have fun. That's right. Okay. So thank you for thank you for being here. And thank you for your service, brother. Well, thank you, buddy. You, I, I'm really glad to see this podcast uh, come out and give gives the police a communication mechanism. You know, to to tell the other side of the story. We only we all we we don't tell the stories. We let you tell the story. So you two don't go anywhere. You hang on. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, if you're on LSD and I just started going, follow the Ellipic Road, follow the Ellipic Road, follow, 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 <laughs> that would work out really. Trip to Oz, by the way, the name of Guy's book. That was a hell of a trip. I mean, that was funny. But, you know, Steve, what something that just seriously pisses me off, uh, and he made such a great point of this. You guys talked about this. This isn't a guy who aged out uh, like a sexual predator or a serial killer. His brain is still working. They, they, they let this guy out because of, quote, COVID. He's supposed to be serving a life sentence. Apparently, life sentence doesn't mean life sentence anymore. You know, an illegal narcotic, especially something like LSD. Which is so complicated to make. It's not like, yep. you know, bathroom meth or something. But they said there's only like six race chemists in the world that have the proficiency to do this without hurting themselves and others. But the fact that he's responsible for 80 to 90 percent of the LSD in the world and we let him out. I mean, what the hell are we becoming here? You know, it's crazy. But you know what? And listening to Guy's story, he's humble because he doesn't want to take credit for what other people did. And you got to admire him for that. You know, he did take the initiative to put a book out to describe uh, this, the whole details about this. But, you know, you heard yourselves multiple times how he gave credit to the other people that are out there doing the work as well. I, I, but I think his career was um, uh, was impacted by his, you know, his uh how do you want to say his interaction with a naked man in his squad car to start off his law enforcement <laughs> career first day out? Uh, but it makes such a good story after, you know, in life after police. Well, then he goes to be a CIA polygrapher and he has to, he has, it's like, no, you didn't. You did really? Let's polygraph you on that. You know, <laughs> he's a man of many talents. Oh man. But, but it was a good story though. And it just, it's one of those things too. You just never know. Right. I mean, you think, Seriously, you know, uh, I, I love being from a small town area, the town I grew up in, 1,500 people, um, just good people out there. You would never think 
what's going on, you know, that Charlie Rich song, what goes on behind closed doors, what's going on behind closed doors or closed missile silos out there? Cause there were a lot of them. I remember as a kid going by him, riding bikes by him. There were, you know, the Minuteman silos. Why? Because Kansas is in the middle of the United States and it's takes longer to hit it. So we have a, you know, time to react and send missiles back. I never knew that till later. And it's like, damn, now they're condos and LSD factories. Well, the other thing is, I think this, this chemist, you know, I'm going to give the piece of shit, the, uh, the credit of mentioning his name here. No, I think he thought he was smart, smarter than everybody else. So you come to a small area and he thinks just because you come from a small area, you're not as smart as anybody else. And he took advantage of the people living there, you know, and, and, and he was somewhat creative in the fact that using the silo to produce uh, LSD, but also hiring local law enforcement off duty job as an off duty job to provide protection on the perimeter of the silo site, you know, create the appearance of a legitimate company. But he just thought he was smarter than everybody else. His happy ass still went to jail, didn't it? Yeah. And you know what, too? It's one of those things. Is it, Here, pro tip to you universities out there looking to hire people. Do a damn background check. Somebody who's got convictions and is already dealing dope and you want them to be your drug control policy advisor, um, we call that a fail. That's a fail. Oh, yeah. And you know what? This guy, he'll be a recidivist. That's a big oh, yeah. word for you, isn't it? You didn't he'll, think I knew that word, did you? Well, I, I saw you write it out right before we started. <laughs> That's why we're practicing with running on the side here. I can look shit up, you know. Yeah, I can. No, but yeah, make like shit this, up, look shit up. Because of his because of his ego and his superiority complex, his narcissistic attitude and and makeup personality, he'll go back to prison for us over with. Either that or somebody will kill him. Yeah, yeah. He he he's uh, he's too smart for his own good. Uh, but by the way smart guy, guess where you're at? At least you were in prison, caught by the dumb guys, you know, like us. So yep. <laughs> nanny, nanny, boo-boo. There you go. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hey, look, if you guys enjoyed this, just uh, head on over to uh, our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. Uh, that's where we got guys. He's got actually written a couple books. We put one there also on uh, active shooters and stuff. So he's done some good work around that. But Trip to Oz, you know, a trip down fantasy lane, fantasy land, uh, just but kids don't do meth and don't do because you don't want to climb through a window of a police car naked and don't do LSD. You know, the trips are bad. <laughs> also follow us on that thing called social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but where you got to be, where you got to be Murph, you got to be at patreoncom slash game of crimes. Why? Well, we got some great content over there. I mean, things like the Q and a where you can ask us anything. We haven't turned down a single question yet. Uh, you heard us make, make reference a little earlier about you can't make this shit up. It's just goofy stories that criminals do around the world and, and stupid calls that come in. We do the 991 or 119 <laughs> or 911 or just pick a 919. I don't know. Murph, just, just yell, numbers. open up your window and yell, help, call the police. <laughs> oh, it's 911. What's your emergency? Where we test your investigative abilities to see if you can decide whether the call is legitimate or not. Is this a, a real murder? Is this a real crime? Or did the person calling in, is he the criminal? And next week, we're going to see if Murph can actually dial 911. That'll be his test. Well, I'm, I'm going to write down the palm of my hand. I just won't wash my hands. Anymore. <laughs> just like recidivist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we also have once a month, we have the Narcometer. We rate a law enforcement movie that you guys get to select if you go to the Game of Crimes fan page on Facebook. Uh, Morgan will post those, and then you guys vote on what you want. We'll put we'll post three movies on there. I think uh, the one coming up this month is uh, Al Pacino month, so we picked one there. Yep, which is a hell of a movie. I just finished watching it this morning. It's I I had never seen the whole movie. I'd only seen the ending. Uh, it was a great movie. But if you want to know what movie it is, it's actually not on the Facebook page. It's on our Patreon page. 
So oh, we only go. post the poll on our Patreon page, which means you got to be in the club. So if you want to join the club, go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes or go to paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. But once again, Murph, you know, this is a great episode. Uh, we've got another good one. We do have another good one coming up because we know what yeah. this one is because we're recording the intro for it right after this one. So, yep. but you guys stay tuned and we want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. Whether it's LSD or meth, just don't do it. Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes.